we have some amazing guests. I didn't. You got me off guard, Mike. I didn't know I was. Uh, I was jumping right into this. Yeah. But we got some amazing guests. I, I was just telling you guys. I don't know if we're live or not, but uh, Dr. Scott Jensen should be also um, joining us. He has an amazing story, which I think is really important. He's been on my show, and and uh, you know, if we get a to, to have another opportunity to share his story, is super important. So this is the first time I think this is a. Uh, we're always doing new things on these shows. And today is the first time we possibly might have two doctors on, uh, or three doctors. We have two now, Dr. Kendra Becker and then Dr. Brian Hooker is with us. They both have phenomenal. Hi, <laughs> Looks nice like we got us some readers here. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, because we're live, and actually I like to go to, to the new guests first and, and usually kind of give a little bit of a background because the people who've been listening to this show kind of know a little bit about everybody else. But uh, if Dr. Kendra Becker and Dr. Brian Hooker, if you guys can give us just like a brief little uh, background of your story and, uh, and how you got involved with this, uh, you know, exposing truth. Brian, you want to go first? Uh, I, I'm really fine either way, but uh, I'll just jump in. Uh, my name is Brian Hooker. And um, I am very active in the whole uh, health freedom movement, especially around vaccines and vaccine injury. I want the truth to get out regarding vaccines and vaccine injury. I am the father of a 22-year-old male who was injured by his 15-month vaccines and is still in the process of recovering from those injuries, you know, now 20 years later. And so I been very, very active in this movement since about 2001. And I work uh, directly right now with Children's Health Defense, uh, which is uh, Bobby Kennedy Jr.'s organization, and have been on Ricky's show before and am really, really excited to be here. Yeah, many of you guys know about the CD whistleblower, right? The CDC whistleblower, Dr. Uh, William Thompson. Well, you can thank Dr. Brian Hooker for uh, that story. He is uh, in that movie, Vax, uh, the Del Bigtree uh, film. He's the one who recorded the phone calls and, and all that stuff. And uh, because of his background in science and all that stuff, he, he really understands the research and he knew exactly what he was looking at. And uh, so I mean, it, it was an amazing story because that documentary got labeled a conspiracy theory podcast, but the, or uh, documentary but the truth is that it was a cover-up documentary it was about a, a cover-up and that's really what it was about but uh dr kendra becker also a friend who we've spoken many of times uh can you share a little bit of your background please sure so i started out i went to college and became a nurse and i was going to be the next uh florence nightingale so i spent eight years in conventional medicine and realized that there was a better way to treat patients that were sick because what we were doing was not health care it was death care So I went back to school, got my uh, naturopathic doctor degree and also my APRN just because of the way that things had worked out with um, practice rights and things like that in the state that I had started in. So that was kind of the beginning of my awakening on the medical side. I had always been involved in politics. And as I kind of furthered my career, my specialty became genetics and epigenetics. So about 
eight years ago when I doubled down in uh, genetics and epigenetics and really understood and became very aware of the political climate and how it was affecting not only my life, but the lives of my children and anybody else who wanted to be born in, in a hospital or anywhere else. And the level of, of medical intervention that was required to actually live on this planet uh, those two worlds kind of collided for me, and I became a very prominent advocate in both uh, the health freedom uh, movement and also the conservative movement, and uh, particularly the First Amendment. And so I've kind of just sat there for the last eight or so years. And now that my kids are a little older, um, I find that it's easier to travel and it's a little bit easier to be vocal because I'm able to educate them and they can kind of stand up on their own when somebody says, oh, your mother, she's one of those. And they can be like, yeah, well, she's one of those and this is why. And so um, that's kind of how I got involved. And um, I'm clearly not afraid to speak my mind, but in this climate with the amount of censorship, it is, it is very challenging. So anybody that is, is willing to speak freely and speak the truth needs to stand up and, and today's the day to do it. Yeah. And you're seeing more and more doctors do it, which make me feel really good. I had Dr. North up on recently and then Dr. Madey, who actually might be joining us uh, tonight. But uh, I mean, it's amazing when you see people who are willing to put their careers on the line to spread truth, because uh, obviously it's not a good career move to, to get anywhere near the vaccine debate. But with the COVID vaccine being a hot topic at, at the moment, uh, Dr. Brian Hooker knows firsthand that the science is very sketchy and, and whatnot. What, what was uh, your initial opinions on all this stuff, knowing your background and the fact that obviously you can't trust the CDC and Big Pharma and everything you've learned? What, what was your perspective and your opinions on what's going on now with push, the pushing of the well, vaccine? Ricky, it's obviously very scary uh, what's happening right now and what's going on. Um, the... The Pfizer version of the uh, BioNTech uh, version of the vaccine um, and really all of the front runner vaccine candidates are completely new technology. They've never been used on humans before. Uh, the clinical trial data was hastily put together over a period of 10 to 14 weeks. So we really have no long-term safety studies. We don't know what happens when you take messenger RNA, you know, that they're using in these formulations and you put it into human bodies, we do know that there's a higher propensity of things like Bell's palsy uh, and other neurological diseases. People have died from these vaccines. And, you know, I went through the clinical trial data directly uh, when it became uh, available for the FDA. And what I saw was that, you know, they're supposed to be giving these vaccines to seniors in nursing homes. And these are already chronically ill individuals. You're, you're not supposed to vaccinate six people, even under you know, a very, very flawed system of medical care. You're not supposed to do that. That's what happened to my son. He was vaccinated when he had an active ear infection and that sent him tremendously downhill very, very quickly. And so you know, I think this is a great way to clear out nursing home beds. You're gonna kill people. You are absolutely going to kill people with these vaccines. The, uh, the population that was most underrepresented was the geriatric population. In fact, the phase two clinical trials where they did safety data, they literally had 22 individuals that they tested that were above 68 years of age. And this is the primary, now they're, they're sending out millions of um, uh, vaccinations across the United States 
for people who are on long-term care. And, and it's, it's a disaster. It's, it's an absolute disaster waiting to happen. It's already happening in the UK and, and it, I know it will only be worse here. Yeah, it, it's uh, it, it is it is scary, and it's amazing how many people are willing to just jump in line and take this uh, this vaccine. That I mean, you're basically a guinea pig for it. You're you're not. It, there's been no trials on it, no, no long term uh, trials. There's no peer review studies, nothing, and uh, and yet you're you're you literally are a part of the study. You are the study because they're getting the vac- vaccine first. Uh, Dr. Kendra Becker, would you like to expand on some of what? Uh... Sure. I'm actually giving a lecture on the different COVID vaccines that are being released on the 21st, which I think is Monday in uh, Dunedin, Florida. So if anybody wants that information, I can pass that flyer around. And specifically, to, you know, speaking to what Brian said, you're absolutely correct. I mean, the, the studies on these were so flimsy and any vaccine going forward, the phase three phase three trials start when they start dispensing it into the general public. In this case, this vaccine was rushed so quickly using state-of-the-art technology that's never been used before. We know even by the small number of clinical trials that they've done, that it ramps up autoimmunity, that it causes anaphylactic reactions, and that it really kind of amplifies and and ramps up the immune system. So in in a country where, you know, 50% of our children carry a chronic medical diagnosis, we're going to go ahead and continue to amplify what's going on in their immune system. I think it's it's dangerous and unsafe. And and furthermore, the amount of, and, and we've talked a lot about predictive programming and and fear-based, quote, education and things that have been going on in the mainstream media. But furthermore, we have a vaccine that's 90% effective for a virus that is 99.99% curable. I mean, I just, survivable, the the thinking on all of this is a far greater problem than the vaccine. You know, I'm a capitalist. People want to put out a crappy product and people want to buy that crappy product. That, that's up to them. That is not up to me. But when the government starts mandating and dispensing what they're calling health care for no apparent reason, reason without any sound scientific backing, that's when we start talking about tyranny. And that's the conversation I think we need to have. It's, I mean, we're in a very, very scary predicament at this point. Can I just ask a question about the efficacy? Because as I understand it, um, and this is claimed efficacy because when Bill Gates was talking about this in April, these uh, Moderna vaccinations and the trials, they said 50% efficacy. As I understand it, the efficacy is not an infection rate. It is producing these antibodies that they claim will be there. So they don't know whether you can be infected or it's going to lower the infection or even mortality rate. So really with this efficacy, when they say it's 90% effective, that's not from getting you infected, as I understand it, or even lowering a mortality rate that... If you believe the World Health Organization, we've played the video many times, it is a 99.4% survivable virus, probably better than that. So you guys as doctors, please talk about when, when they talk about efficacy, they're not talking about infection or mortality rates. They are only talking about the antibodies, correct? It's, well, the whole thing is is all, it's just a big word soup and it's a bunch of blobby, blobby blobs. I mean, it's the same kind of ridiculous predictive programming they use with the measles vaccine. And Brian, you can speak to that. I mean, don't you remember the marketing that went on with Merck? They saved 21 million children with the MMR vaccine? <laughs> I, I mean, 
come on, it, it, these numbers are don't make any sense whatsoever. And they don't even have to because vaccines are 100% liability free. So they can put whatever they want on the outside of that label. It doesn't matter what's inside your little microchip, your little nanos. We could talk about all the different ingredients in there, which are equivalently scary. And not to mention the fact that now it's a double jab, right? You got to go and then you have to be back on day 28. That's what they're saying for the Pfizer vaccine. You better be back on day 28 or your immunity, quote unquote, is going to wane. So that is correct. And and the immunity um, itself, you, you know, if you look at the presence of what they call neutralizing antibodies, which were are the ones that supposedly are going to go after COVID-19, um, you you can see that one booster is not going to be enough. This is this is a quite a business enterprise because they're going to come back in three months and say, you know what, you have to get the vaccine again. And then you have to get two doses of the vaccine again. You can tell already just by the documentation that was submitted to the FDA that, yeah, you do produce some neutralizing antibodies to that. The immune system does work absolutely fine, and they've proven that. But the, but because it's such a horribly imperfect, imperfect immunity, then the antibody titers drop off precipitously. And so you're back at square one. You're, you're basically just getting poisoned in a vial with perhaps some type of short-term immunity that they don't know whether it's going to reverse severe or um, prevent severe cases. They don't know if they're going to create asymptomatic carriers with this particular vaccine. It is, it is completely a crapshoot. And, you know, they're, they're gambling with the United States population. And 58% of the United States population has already said, yeah, they will get the COVID-19 vaccine. So this is a cataclysm that we've never seen medically. So I also want to point out today, uh, Santa Clara County is doing door-to-door virus testing. Now, they are targeting um, lower income populations, in my opinion, because they are less likely to have the resources to fight back. Now, my question is, they're going to do this virus testing. And if this vaccine is only producing these antibodies, then why aren't they testing the people that may have been infected and produced the antibodies in the first place to see if they even need the vaccine? That's not even talked about, correct? Of course, it's not even talked about. And even Trump has said multiple times, once you get it, then you're uh, you're immune for life. Now, I don't know that that's the case. I know that I had COVID in February and I tested positive for antibodies in May. So I have not retested since May, but I know that I had them three months after. And, and that at the time was the research that was, they said that that was the sweet spot as far as seeing antibodies. So the other thing is, and correct me if I'm wrong, Dr. Hooker, but isn't it, it's the B cells that actually create the antibodies in our, uh, in our uh, immune system, but this vaccine targets T cells, correct? This vaccine also targets T cells and the T, T cell response was woeful. It was, it was just, you know, they, they say that you, they're going to get a T cell arm of immunity, but T cells just aren't stimulated in the way that they claim that they they're, they're going to be stimulated by these vaccinations. And when you start to, you know, vaccinations have traditionally up to this point only monkeyed with the B cell arm of our immunity. Now we're coming out with a COVID vaccine, which will actually alter our immunity for the B cell response and the T cell response. That's both arms of acquired immunity. And I think that we'll see all sorts of new types of autoimmune conditions because we are conditioning a particular response from T cells. And, you know, if, if it was, if it was worth it, 
And I can say unequivocally as a parent of a vaccine injured child, no, it is not worth it. Never is it worth it. Then, you know, there you could do some type of risk benefit analysis. But as uh, Dr. Kendra has pointed out and others have pointed out, this is a survivable disease. The mortality rates for this disease are extremely low and they're not protecting the most vulnerable populations as it is. And so, you know, going using a uh, 90%, quote unquote, 90% efficacious vaccine with something that's 99% survivable plus just absolutely makes no sense. One thing that was reassuring, I, a very close friend of mine, his, uh, his girlfriend is a nurse and she was saying in Massachusetts that there's been tons of issues with keeping staff because the second that they started saying that they're, they're going to mandate the vaccine and this is she's a nurse i mean she goes to patients and she, like she told me like they get pushed to sell these vac uh, these vaccines hey you should get the flu vaccine you should get this you should get that and um and yet like 20 percent of the hospital left once they heard that there was a possible mandate for the vaccine and it's reassuring i mean it makes me feel like wow these people are on the front lines they're there and and they're not falling for it, even though because they see it every day and they're close to it, and um, so that that's definitely a good thing. Now, Br Brian Festa, you want to get into this because you're also, I'm sure you have. Well, I was going to say you always have something to say, but <laughs> I'm sure you have something to say on this topic also. Well, no, I've been just welcome everybody. Hey, uh, Kendra and Brian, nice to nice see, to see you guys you. and everyone else here. Um, I've, I've just been listening. I enjoy uh, these programs, Ricky, because it's just so nice to listen to so many amazing, smart people. And I can learn a lot of things, too. Um, did you have a specific question? Well, you know, obviously, we hear over and over again in the mainstream media, oh, the, uh, the, the science has settled, all this stuff about vaccines. You also have a very personal story similar to uh, Dr. Hooker in regards to having a vaccine injured child and how that sparked your interest in this whole topic and whatnot. Can you just give a, a brief background for people who don't know what that, that yeah. story is? Yeah, um, we do have similar stories. Um, you know, it's, I was just telling somebody today because they were talking about this COVID vaccine being rolled out, of course. Um, and, you know, obviously the big story and, and, and it's totally exploitative the way they're doing it, how they're exploiting people of color. The first person to get the vaccine was a woman uh, who was a, an ICU nurse in New York who happens to be black. And the first person in Connecticut that rolled out was an APRN who happens to be black. Um, and we've talked at great length about this. I know this isn't the question you asked me, but I just want to make a statement quickly. <laughs> um, we've talked at great length about that at the Connecticut Freedom Alliance and we the Patriots and of the programming that we've done. Um, and as it turns out, um, you know, one of one of the people is actually one of the people that's been, you know, a spokesperson for us, one of the, the attorneys, uh, an African-American uh, woman who's a spokesperson has been speaking out about how they're exploiting the black community, happens to be the cousin uh, of the woman who was the first to get vaccinated today. Um, and so we had a great conversation about that earlier. And, um, you know, it's really, really disgusting how they're exploiting it. Um, and they're they're using the black community really as, as guinea pigs. But just to talk more, more generally, um, besides the COVID vaccine, about my own personal story, my son uh, received, he actually was injured not by the MMR, which most people assume because he is on the spectrum and they assume, um, you know, the association is there, which it is, uh, but he never even received the MMR. My son was injured by a flu shot. 
which he received when he was 12 months old. Um, and so uh, we observed uh, really uh, almost immediately after that shot, um, a lot of digestive issues uh, to the point where he was having, I don't want to get too graphic, but uh, basically the skin was, was burning off of his bottom because of his diarrhea. And he was just having horrible, he couldn't take any dairy anymore and um, just developed horrible allergies and was very, you know, his whole demeanor changed. And then, um, you know, but we didn't really see some signs of autism right away. Um, and my wife, she speculates it's, we didn't really start seeing, seeing it until he, he was weaned. Uh, we stopped vaccines at that point. Once we started seeing some health symptoms, um, you know, and very adverse reactions for his, you know, digestive system, we start, we stopped it. But as he started to wean and we feel the breast milk she feels had a, had a, a protective quality. Um, once she started to wean, then you started seeing all the symptoms like immediately after that uh, start to surface um, where he, we, he, you know, before had language and had, had lost it. And um, you know, not much language, obviously, at that age, just, you know, words strung together, but then really lost pretty much all of his language. And then, uh, you know, the the other cues, being obsessed with things like spinning wheels. And I mean, I can go on and on. I don't have to, you know, list every uh, symptom of autism, the social aspects, not making eye contact. I mean, obviously, those of you who are familiar with it are familiar with all of the signs and symptoms. Um, and I was in denial. I didn't want to believe it at first. But Actually, when we had him tested, he ended up having a muscle biopsy done when he was three years old, as well as a test of his uh, CSF, his cerebral spinal fluid. Um, and that revealed the muscle biopsy in, in particular, and we did ha he's had um, lots of testing on his brain, EEG, MRI, lots of extensive testing. He has neuro a team of neurologists. But one thing we discovered um, was that he had a very severe mitochondrial disorder. Um, and actually, uh, he has an autoimmune disorder as well. Um, it, it's not specifically diagnosed as PANS, but it's, it's it, it, I mean, we're convinced it is PANS, but it's autoimmune encephalitis. Um, but he has a proliferation of his mitochondria, um, which is directly linked to vaccine injury. And actually, his immunologist um, admits that. Uh, and she's a mainstream immunologist. Um, well, she's mainstream, but she's willing to do cutting edge therapies and treatments. So she she believes in things like PANS, which is a step ahead that a lot of uh, immunologists don't. But um, she confirmed that, you know, his problems, his immune uh, dysfunction and his mitochondrial dysfunction were likely caused uh, by the flu shot. So, uh, you know, when a mainstream doctor tells you that someone who's definitely not anti-vax, who vaccinates patients, uh, when a mainstream doctor tells you that, you you, you know you've you've got strong evidence of a vaccine injury. Um, but I mean, mm. I give the credit for all of this, figuring all of this out to my wife. She's the medical person. She's she's um, you know has uh, you know a background in biology and is also so uh, I, I I give the credit to her to, to figuring this out because I would never um, have known to do that specific kind of muscle testing. I mean, she had to ask for that. The doctors don't recommend this. You know, she had to really push for all of this stuff so that we have a record of it. But of course, from the legal perspective, you were talking about earlier, Kendra, about immunity from liability. It's true. From the legal perspective, by the time we figured out it was a vaccine injury, there's nothing we could do about it because it's three years from the onset of the first symptoms. That's when the statute of limitations starts to tick. So 
how many parents know it that early on and have evidence? And you also have to have evidence. You can't just say it. You can't just say, I believe it's a vaccine injury and, and, and therefore you're going to win in vaccine court. That's not how it works. You have to actually have all that testing, which now we do, but it's too late to file. It's, and it's, you have to have a specific list of symptoms that will be allowed for a hearing or a trial in vaccine court, many of which the, you know, the original list when the vaccine court was set up in 1986 was a much longer and extensive list. Now they've removed things like seizures from a DTaP right. vaccine. Certainly I mean, autism's not on there. No, of course um, not. And, and, and uh, mm. autoimmune encephalitis isn't on there. Sure so what am I, what would I be able to prove anyway? I mean, it's like they, they try to make it seem like there's only this very, very tiny list of adverse reactions and vaccine injuries when really it's so expansive that most of the population is vaccine injured is the reality of it. Mm -hmm. Allergies, ADHD, asthma, um, uh, what you're talking about, seizures, epilepsy, all of these things, autism, all of these things have skyrocketed in the last 25 years. Um, and it's and what else has skyrocketed in the last 25 years? The childhood immunization schedule. Yeah. Well, and they're trying mm -hmm. to do it with COVID, too, because they have that Syncton 1 protein that's used as a carrier <clears throat> in the COVID vaccine that has a high affinity for placentas. So if you have an autoimmune predisposition and you've had a baby or haven't had a baby and you grow a placenta, there's a very high probability it can upregulate your autoimmune system. And it's just, and the thing is, is, is because we've erased so much history, it's the same playbook they used in the 90s when the Gates Foundation and UNICEF and WHO went into Africa to give everybody a tetanus vaccine and they laced it with HCG, anti-HCG, excuse me. I have a, a question about the, the reports now. I mean, initially there were t people saying that there was some type of HIV insert. You had the Nobel Prize winner, et cetera. And now there are studies coming out suggesting that these people are going to be more susceptible to getting HIV after taking this vaccination. And that's uh, main line. I was wondering if you, uh, the doctors could uh, speak to that. You want to speak to that, Brian? Sure. One, one of the things, just to uh, clear it up a little bit, one of the things that will happen is it will make, give you a propensity to test positive for HIV, regardless of whether you have it or not. So people are going to have some really tense moments here because, um, you know, getting the COVID vaccine and the antibodies associated with the COVID vaccine will, will give a false positive on an HIV test. It won't give you HIV per se, um, unless it's somehow tainted with HIV blood, which um, is, you know, I would not expect to be the case. But what it will do is it will give you a propensity that you would test positive for HIV. And I think that we have to look at that. We also have to look at the fact that, you know, we do have um, a protein mimetic that is going to, looks off, an awful lot like placental protein. And, you know, they didn't test for that in the clinical trials. They didn't test for any type of cross-reactivity with placenta. They haven't done clinical trials on pregnant women. And, but they did, they are recommending this for women of childbirth age. And, you know, the, the worst case scenario would be that we sterilize millions and millions of women in the United States. Which the HPV vaccine did, by the way. Correct. I, I have a, a question. Uh, I have a lot of friends that are excited about this COVID vaccine. Uh, my, my Facebook is just flooded with it. They can't wait to take the vaccine. And uh, all the information you've talked about here sounds very concerning. 
Uh, but I, I fear if it was given to them, they're just going to ignore it and continue to be excited for the vaccine. Is there any way to distill down like a warning or hesitation? I know you probably don't want to give medical advice, but what do you suggest to people uh, as to how they can talk to people about these concerns? Uh, for me, I just say keep it really simple. I mean, England released the vaccine. They injected it into a bunch of people in a week, and then they put a, uh, a black box warning on it for anaphylactic reaction. The vaccine was out a, a week. So those things, I mean, I just keep it really simple with people. I mean, I'm in a think tank with a bunch of PhDs and MDs, and we sequenced this virus back in December, and we looked at all the proteins in the vaccine and all of that, but that's what I do for fun. So I think for people that are, are really controlled and truly fearful about this, I think it's a, a, a very gentle conversation about risk versus benefit. You've stayed alive this long. What makes you think that you're not going to stay alive, you know, for the next eight months? Or is this worth the risk for you? And I think you have to put it back on them because ultimately that's the biggest play that that America and the media and everybody else has manipulated us against is, is the fact that we were designed in the image of God, but yet he somehow forgot our immune system in spite of the fact that we're all survivors of the bubonic plague, which legit kills people. Well, right. I got a question. Oh, go so, ahead, Brian. Uh, so, um, so the, the the Pfizer vaccine report that came out, they they specified like four point six percent serious adverse reactions or severe adverse reactions, and then 05 percent serious adverse reactions. So, what's the difference between a severe adverse reaction and a serious adverse reaction? So, um, um, uh, go ahead. Go go ahead, Kendra. I was going to say a serious adverse reaction is irreparable damage, and a minor or a or a a, a minor, yeah, I think it's a minor adverse reaction is something that is temporary based on the clinical di based on the clinical definition, the way I understand it. Right, that's correct. And and what what a serious adverse reaction is called a grade three adverse reaction, and it would require some type of medical attention, but it's not a not necessarily a long term effect that you would be dealing with over a long period of time. However, you know, how can they say that? They can't really say that if they're looking at adverse reactions and, and the, the patient that they followed the longest, they followed 14 weeks post the second vaccine. So we don't really know, you, you know, they're guessing whether these are long-term effects or not. Uh, you know, people that have myalgia, you know, which is uh, frank, serious muscle pain, we don't know, is that leading to a fibromyalgia that's gonna last for the rest of their lives? Is that gonna lead to multiple sclerosis? What else is it going to lead to? And these things just don't pop up within a two-month time window and say, yeah, we're here and we're going to be here for the rest of the lifetime. A lot of immune autoimmune reactions take a while to brew. And after you've had the second dose, then that will come up much, much later. What, what, so about, just, what about somebody, uh, I hate to dominate here, but I was diagnosed with lupus 15 years ago. And I might be forced into a situation since I work in corporate America um, where I might not be able to work for certain businesses unless I get a vaccine. Can I, can I use lupus as uh, an excuse that I don't want this? I already have an autoimmune disease. I'm all, I'm good. It all use allergies. On, exactly. It's all depends on what the criteria is. When the flu shot first came out and it started injuring people, you could use a whole bunch of autoimmune diseases, egg allergies, a whole host of things to kind of recuse yourself from actually requiring a flu vaccine. And they called it 
uh, um, it wasn't really a medical exemption, but it was a medical reason. So I, I think that it all depends on how this rolls out and, and what they're actually putting in place for mandates and requirements. You Anything know. that would be considered an allergy at this point, I would say is on the table. And I, and I, you know, in avoiding the vaccine, I tell, you know, throw the kitchen sink at them, throw everything and anything that you have in your arsenal. You know, if this is something where, you know, you would be required to get it for a condition of employment, um, which, you know, some, some attorneys are saying that could be legal under the emergency use authorization, especially under diff different state laws. Um, but I would throw the kitchen sink at it. And I would also think twice, I, you know, I've already told my institution if they mandated, you, you know, I, I would, would quit before I would take the vaccine. And, you know, when you, when you talk to people uh, like Brian Festa and myself and other people that have vaccine injured uh, loved ones, <laughs> you know, you know, this is, this is, this is a lifetime. This is a lifetime of pain and agony. These are destroyed lives. These are destroyed families. And, you know, having, having to gut out a period of unemployment versus a lifetime of uh, putting somebody through tremendous amounts of pain and suffering, I'd, 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 pick, I'd pick losing a job any day. I was wondering if uh, you guys could speak to some of the different ingredients that are in this thing that are just beyond bizarre. Uh, for instance, luciferase, you know, and the fact that they chose 66.6 .6 micrograms in this. First off, what is luciferase used for? And then on top of that, what are other the other things that just shock you that are put into this vaccine? An enzyme. I was, yeah, exactly. Before I have to say this or I'll lose my train of thought, but I wanted to say with some of the clinical trials that were done on this vaccine, the problem with vaccines, vaccine clinical trials in general is there's never a double blind placebo control study. So they never give you the vaccine and they never give, or they never give 50 people the vaccine and they never give 50 people saline and then see how those people do over four days, 10 weeks, five years or whatever. So what they used as the placebo for this vaccine for one of the clinical trials was the meningococcal vaccine. And that's a typical playbook for the CDC and some of these pharmaceutical companies is they use another vaccine as the placebo, which is what they did in the hepatitis B trials and newborns years ago and several others. And that way they say, oh, look, there's no difference between the placebo group and the vaccine group as far as side effects go. So intellectually, as humans, we're thinking it's, it's a standard double-blind placebo control study like we learned about in eighth grade science class. But none of these studies are done that way. Can I interject? One of them, the COV005, I think it was. So there's the ones with the meningitis. That same company, I think it was Pfizer. Uh, maybe it was the AstraZeneca one. They did one with saline and they're not releasing the results of that. They did it in South Africa. So they had five trials going and they're only talking about two. And then I, I read several articles recently that they are considering giving all the control groups the vaccine because it would be unethical to make them wait two years as they originally signed up to do. And that, of course, just blows up any chance of seeing what the long term effects are. Right, exactly. They're getting rid of the control group. If they do have a saline placebo, they don't want that information to see the light of day. And it's interesting because the Pfizer vaccine, they did run a saline placebo group 
and the the difference between the amount of adverse events in the between the vaccine group and the placebo group was outstanding. It was something that you know it was it was bad enough that um, out of the advisory committee, the what's called VERBAC is the committee that um, approved the vaccine for the FDA. Four people did dissent and approved did not approve the vaccine to go forward. And part of that was because they looked at the placebo control group and they looked at how many adverse events. There were many, many times more adverse events with the vaccine group than the saline placebo. And, and I was astounded that they ran a saline placebo in the first place, but you're, you're absolutely right. What they're going to do is they're going to say, oh, it, it's uh, unethical to remove, release the vaccine and, and keep the placebo group the placebo group. And what they'll do is they'll destroy their control. They'll basically have uh, a very, very short term, very, very small placebo trial. And, you know, two weeks later, they'll forget about it and we'll never see that data again. I have a Hi. question for, for the doctors really quick. Is What is the science? And maybe you can explain this to us a little better. The reasoning behind these new vaccines, or at least one of the vaccines, needing to be stored at negative 80 degrees centigrade. What is going on here? Why is that happening? And should that be extra alarming for us? Well, it's, I mean, it's a very, very friable vaccine. They have messenger RNA in there. So what ends up happening is if it warms up and heats up, it damages the, the DNA and the RNA in the vaccine. And so that's the reason behind it. The scary part is, is that it, because no, I mean, as a physician, I don't have a freezer that can store something at negative 90 degrees. So that invokes a whole nother layer of government control that only certain subsets and certain individuals and certain government entities are the control or are in control of who and how this vaccine is disseminated. Right. That's why we have all these fridge farms. Hi, hi everyone. I'm a functional medicine consultant and my beats are vaccine safety. I've, um, I've been censored because of it. So um, Dr. Made is not going to join us. Uh, Ricky, she's driving. But I did interview her last week in regards to the ingredients. The Moderna is the one that uses the luciferase enzyme. And then this Pfizer, um, one of them is the Mneon. Um, which has a luminescence to it for whatever reason, and the PG, which is the um, attacks the um, the placenta. Is that correct, Dr. Kendra? Yes, that is correct. And in fact, my talk that I'm doing next Monday focuses a lot on PEG because it, it ends up allowing the the mRNA to basically go anywhere in the body, which is what causes the upregulation of the immune system. Yeah, yeah, so like, yeah uh, go ahead, sorry. Oh, I, I just wanted to say that because of the temperatures that were creating all these fridge farms that dry ice has gone through the roof, uh, that it's quite um, peculiar, the um, freezing temperature. I believe one of them, Moderna, maybe not need um, sub sub-freezing temperature. It's the AstraZeneca one, and what's so interesting about this about the different temperatures required is they're using it as the breakpoint for who gets it. So the super frozen ones go to the Western world and the AstraZeneca stuff that does not need to be super frozen is going to the global South. 
And I just feel like if they're doing a live trial and they want to actually be able to distinguish the groups from one another, that AstraZeneca one is the one that has gene induction, DNA-based one with the simian virus and right. then the, but the ones with the mRNA, you know, I just, I think it's weird because they're focusing on race and equity and all that, but actually poor people are going to get a different experimental vaccine than the Western world. And they're using the temperature issue as, as a reason for that. I'm suspicious. There's also the FDA did release um, all these side effects that it could cause to Mike. I, I reversed my lupus. It's possible to reverse it. I don't think he's listening, but I have that um, that card, that that slide with all the you know all the side effects that it, it gives, and then they're they're putting out conflicting um, messages. Where in this slide deck that I have, it clearly says if you're pregnant, don't get vaccinated. If you've already done one round, don't do the other. And then in, in reports on the MSM, they're saying that it's perfectly fine, that there's, there's nothing wrong. And they're specifically picking African-Americans. Like yesterday on the San Diego local news, they had a Wilma Kuten, a black doctor, because of the Tuskegee experiment, because vaccine hesitancy is higher. And uh, when I looked up this woman, oh, you got plenty of money in San Diego University from Billy Boy Gates. So these are all compromised um, people who don't give a shit about black lives. They're, they're whoring their own kind out. Um, Miriam, just I think we're having a static from yours. Is there any oh. way you can mute your thing for a second? Just mute. See, we just got to see if we're having static right now. Yeah. So is there any way you could, uh, I, Ricky, what do you think she should do? Relog hey, on? I think it's my, I think it might be my heater. Is it gone? No, no it's back. Oh. Okay, maybe, Miriam, try uh, maybe leaving the meeting and then returning <laughs> and seeing if maybe it sounds like it could be your microphone. I mean, if you have anything near a, a sensitive microphone, it could cause some some static. Even if she took down the gain or something, that might just be it. She might not have to even restart. If you got it on a on like a little deck or something, you, you, I do. I can hey, lower. Hey, it. I just lower your gain. I, I guarantee that's it. That looks like a reporter mic, so it's going to be able to pick up more than yeah. uh, than other traditional type of mics. But can, can I jump in real quick? Because my I'm my uh, one of my closest friends here, a big activist in Phoenix, is Tina Marie. Her best friend was Brandy Vaughn of Learn the Risk, and we're all standing on the shoulders of other people here who, uh, you know, were basically doing the work, you know, before you know a lot of us. Obviously, not not everyone. I mean, obviously, a lot of you know big time people on here too. But anyways, Brandy Brandy passed away. Her dying wish was to have basically learn the risk, be able to maintain itself. She wanted her son Bastion to go to Tina Marie, which actually she was at Tina's house on Thanksgiving. I was actually going to go down there to interview her, but I was in, in Vegas over at Kingsley's house and we decided to do it over zoom instead. And it, which would have been right about now, but unfortunately, obviously that's not, that's not happening. But Brandy was a famous Merck whistleblower. She was the one that blew the whistle on Vioxx. And so she knew she was one of their their sales reps. She knew that Vioxx was killing people and she still blew the whistle on it, you know, to obviously, you know, great, you know, expense to herself and her career there. And then, you know, over the time she was, you know, threatened several times. I mean, she had her house broken into, they disabled the code within, you know, seconds and she had not given the code out to anybody. She had had her house broken into and she said in several speeches that she felt like a sitting duck and they put, you know, like a duck statue in like in her backyard just to, you know, to freak her out. But she still kept going, still 
kept pursuing this. And she said last year, if anything were to happen to me, I want this investigated and had a whole big sort of like manifesto of like what to do. And now, unfortunately, you know, her best friend, Tina, who's, you know, the legacy contact on her Facebook account and also running the Learn the Risk pages and, you know, an admin at Learn the Risk, you know, she's, you know, people in the movement are coming after her. And, you know, there's all sorts of, you know, shenanigans going on behind the scenes. And so, you know, right now, I mean, they need money to help, you know, get a, uh, I mean, when, when Brandy was at Tina's house, she said that she, if anything were to happen to her, she wanted Tina to watch her son. And now, you know, we're trying to get a, you know, find her lawyer, trying to, you know, she doesn't really have any family. The grandparents are back in France. And so now uh, we're basically trying to make sure that we can take care of, of uh, her son and, you know, who's, who's nine years old. And so if, if people want to donate, uh, the link is bit.ly slash learn the risk. Again, BIT, it's a bit.ly link, bit.ly slash learn the risk. And that's to help fund an independent investigation. And even if she died of gallbladder issues, which, you know, she didn't tell her best friends whose house she was just at, that she had any, any stomach pains. She didn't tell her naturopath that she had any stomach pains. And now a lot of people in the movement are just like, oh yeah, well, everything is fine. You know, no need to investigate. It's gallbladder. And then trying to make it a money grab for, you know, one of their organizations when her dying wish, her dying wish, whether she died of that or not, her dying wish that was memorialized on her Facebook page that she had wrote almost exactly a year ago was if I died, this needs to be investigated. I'm perfectly fine. I, I have all organic, everything, you know, she takes care of herself really well. And now that's being put in jeopardy. So $50,000 was raised within two days on GoFundMe. And those motherfuckers at GoFundMe took all the money and, and, uh, you know, completely, you know, screwed everything that's going on. So now there's a go get funding and some other avenues, but you know, if it wasn't for, I mean, she was, I was supposed to interview her, you know, basically right about now. And so it's just, you know, if, if they can do it to her, they can do it to anybody else. And I'm sure if, if any one of us dies under mysterious circumstances, you want people to go looking into that as well. And even she may have, died naturally, but to have so many people in the movement immediately come out and say, you know, nothing to see here, gallbladder, don't, don't look at it, you know, and, and you know, it's just sort of, you know, disgusting, but you know, it, it's, but yeah, learn the risk, you know, guys can check out her organization, uh, you know, please, you know, donate to that one link. And that's just, you know, what I want to say. And thank you to the doctors who are here for, you know, providing the, you know, all this great information. To, to also see the video that she made before her death, um, say, saying, Please look into my death. There was nothing wrong with her gallbladder. Um, I can put that link if you don't have it, Tim. Yeah, I did watch. If you want to put that in there, I did watch that video last night. And I am, you know, I've already visited her friend Tina twice since this and gotten a lot of the inside information on what's going on. And uh, if it wasn't for me being at Aaron and Kingsley's house on Thanksgiving, I probably would have would have interviewed her. But uh, yeah, it's just. You know, we have to remember the people who are here before us, and if yeah. and you know if we aren't, and if there's other whistleblowers who are out there that you know stuff is happening, no one's going to come out and blow the whistle if they know that no one's going to help them upon their passing. Exactly. And so, Tim, 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 can I thank you? I just want to thank you so much for what you're doing because I didn't know Brandy uh, personally, but I went out on, on the day she died. I came out and did a did a live about her and exactly what you're saying that you know we're standing on the shoulders of people like Brandy. Um, who, who were in this long before, well, I don't know how long you've been in it, but she was in it a long time before I was. Um, and the things she did were just absolutely incredible. And if you believe, again, I, I don't know what she died of. I, don't, I didn't even know her, okay? But it seems very strange to me, as you said, that her closest friends didn't know anything about a gallbladder issue. And then all of a sudden, we have these large organizations coming up and saying, nothing to see here, it was gallbladder. 
why if you don't really know why wouldn't you just say the cause of death is unknown and we don't want to speculate why would you come out and push a narrative about a gallbladder issue it has a lot of people questioning i've got news for you i have a lot of people questioning the motives of certain organizations and i'm not going to name them right now but there are people looking into it because why the hell are you coming out and promoting a false narrative and there it's it's false because you cannot verify it these organizations and you know who i'm talking about Tim, these organizations came out and they didn't know Brandy personally. They met her before, but they didn't know her to know her personal medical history on a day to day basis any more than Tina Marie did or any more than, um, you know, Aaron Elizabeth or any of these other people knew her so well, who were so close to her and who are denying it. And she herself said, I have screenshots of her chats with certain people that were shared with me where she's saying, I'm worried that they're after me. Uh, she, she she had suspicions. She had signs of people watching her. She she saw things were happening and she was worried that something was going to happen to her. So I don't think it's irresponsible to look into it. It would be irresponsible for us to come out and say it was definitely so and so that killed her or that she was definitely murdered or that she died of gallbladder issues. All of those things are irresponsible, but it's not irresponsible what you're doing to look for the truth and to and I want to fully support it. So I have two organizations, the Connecticut Freedom Alliance and We the Patriots USA. And I've talked to my uh, my business partner about this, Dawn. She very much. She's also, by the way, an insider, former Pfizer um, executive, and and she um, uh, you know has been in this movement for a very long time, going on twenty years now. And she wants to support this as well. She wants our organizations to support it. So if you can share the link with me. Um, or share it in our groups on We the Patriots, but you can find me on Facebook at Brian BDF, or you can email me at Brian at ctfreedomalliance.org. Um, if you send it to those emails, I will make sure that we promote it and we get it out on our Twitter as well as our um, website and our other our Facebook pages, um, you know, because I think this is so important. And I agree with you about about GoFundMe because you know we have a lawsuit against the state of Connecticut for the mask mandate for kids in school. And we originally had GoFundMe and they did the same thing. They took all of our money and they withheld it. I was able to get it back um, you know, through some finagling, I was able to get the money back, but I immediately shut that one down. And so now we're on go get funding and we have been for the last couple of months and it's been great. Um, so I second that, but anyway, I just wanted to jump in. Sorry there. I, I couldn't help myself because this, this story bothers me so much and I'm just so glad. And I've been waiting to connect because I don't know Tina or Aaron or you really. Um, I've been trying, I actually did reach out to Tina and sent her a message through Facebook, but we're not Facebook friends. So she didn't see it. So if you could just let her know, I was trying to get in touch with her um, and definitely um, get that okay. information to me so I can help you out. Okay. Yeah, no, thank you so much for that. I'm, I'm texting you right now. I wrote down your email and I will definitely get that. And, and the thing is, if nothing happens, what's going to happen to her son is he's going to be sent to France. He's probably going to get vaccinated if he's over there because he's going to be with his you know, grandparents who probably don't know any better. Like my grandparents are talking about getting vaccinated. And my main issue in all this stuff is not even vaccines. I'm like relatively new to, to this. And it's mainly because I see what they're doing with the currency and they're trying to use this as a as a as an excuse to get a digital central bank digital currency and then tie it to some sort of universal basic income that says, oh, you didn't get your coronavirus vaccine, so you're not getting your 2000 bucks. Kamala Harris actually talked about having a $10,000 per month universal basic income about six months ago that she in a, in a Senate bill that she even authored. I mean, so the, the thing is you make everybody poor, then you beg, then once, you, once they're poor, you 
they beg for help. And then that help is going to be, you know, us, them having us by the balls with some sort of digital currency. And it's going to be all worldwide. You've got the Bank of Japan talking about it, the European Central Bank talking about it, the Bank of England talking about it, the Bank of International Settlements talking about it. You got the, uh, the Federal Reserve talking about it. And, uh, and Sam, you definitely have to cover sometime in your show, the Bank of International Settlements. But sorry, uh, that, that is definitely a subject to talk about at some point. But thank you so much, Brian, for, uh, for, for, for uh, you know, helping, helping the cause. I have a, a quick question for the doctors that may sound incredibly naive, but how is a mandated vaccine not forced medical treatment? Well, Wait, how do they get around that? Oh, they get around it in a lot of different ways. So it's not technically mandated. So some of the, the corruption, and I'm going to speak to Connecticut as a former Connecticut resident, Brian, but feel free, Brian Festa, feel free to join in. So some of the criminality that goes on in a state like Connecticut is, in spite of the fact that there's a Democratic governor and a Democratic supermajority, the people who really move the chess pieces are these appointed, no accountability cabinet members that the government has, that the governor has put into place. So they don't say that the vaccine is mandated. What they say is, we'll never mandate a vaccine, but your kid can't go to public school without it. You can't get on an airplane without it. You can't renew your driver's license without it. So the federal government, at least in my understanding, doesn't have the, the legal bandwidth to be able to mandate a vaccine. However, the, and we all know that the state's rights trump the federal government rights anyway, which is how we end up with these, you know, criminal mandates that get, you know, shoved through two bodies of legislature like they did in New York in eight hours and then signed by the governor. So it's not that, um, and so they don't call it forced medical care, right? because they're doing it for your own good and they're doing it kind of in the back door. Very similar to what happened with both seatbelts and car seats. I'm not saying that they're bad ideas. I'm just saying the same logic was used in both seatbelts and in car seats and motorcycle helmets too, for that matter. Truth is Guys, could I jump in for a second? I wanted to answer Mike Mike's question, which was about like, how do you, get people that are thinking about getting a vaccine or that are uneducated? How do you educate them on why they might want not want to do it? So for me, it's about telling people about the big picture and using common sense. Then they're going to have to go want to go do that research themselves. Maybe send them to this episode would be a good one. So for me, if we look at the big picture, the big picture is, is that um, us Americans are sicker than human beings have ever been in the history of human beings on this planet. We're so sick. We spend $3.3 trillion on healthcare, so the system's broken, and the more money we put into it, the sicker we're getting. You can't even go to a hospital without having a 5% chance of dying from something else that you went to the hospital for. Just think about it. Going to a hospital, you have a 5% chance of dying of something else just by walking through the doors, and that's healthcare today. So big picture. Um, also, let's look at when, when COVID shut down because we were talking about vaccines. When COVID, when we initially had that initial short shutdown, young mothers and, and, and fathers were not able to get their children into what they called the, see their pediatricians, which are called their baby well visits. At the same time, so they couldn't go see the pediatricians, which meant they couldn't get the vaccinations. What do you think happened to childhood death rates? They plummeted at the exact same time. Is there a correlation there? Well, I don't know, but big picture common sense is maybe we should take a look at that. And then let's go back to what's happened with pharmaceutical industry. They're going broke. 
Their big money-making drugs are expiring and it takes them billions of dollars and multiple years to get these things. And they're running out of combinations. They're running out of trying to find molecules. The vaccines are very inexpensive and very quick to get to market as we're seeing now, especially when there's a lot of public fear. And if we go back to the Vaccine Act of 1986, Ronald Reagan was basically forced to sign that act saying, hey, look, and the vaccine companies literally said it. They got together and said, hey, look, we are going to go out of business because we're getting sued too much. And if you don't help us and sign this act in, we're going to go out of business. It's going to be on you because, Mr. Reagan, you're not going to be able to get medicine to, to the public. So it's like you buy a car, you drive it off the lot, and the engine explodes and your wife dies, and you can't sue the manufacturer. That's what happened in 1986. So their profits are down, and that's why there's a big push, and there's over 300 vaccines in the works right now because that's where the money lies, okay? Yeah, now, and, uh, can, I, can I continue on that for a second? Because I ran some numbers just to, you know, uh, play with the – because follow the money is usually the trail here, and – and I ran the, I did, you know, like, let's say that they wanted herd immunity. So like, let's say 60% of the world population needed to get vaccinated. Uh, I'm taking the Moderna vaccine as an example here. Uh, so it's $64, the cost of the vaccine. So that's $299.520 billion uh, that they would make on that one vaccine. And now, of course, you know, you just heard recently, like out of the UK, well, uh, first of all, it was out of... Uh, uh, Denmark, where the minks, you know, had a mutated uh, virus, then they ran into, you know, and disappeared, some of them, after he killed them all. Uh, and then second, it just popped up today in the UK, a mutated version of the virus. And I heard, I, I had a leaked document here in Canada, I'm, I'm over here in Canada, and in Canada, they actually had a leaked document that tells us that they're going to run with uh, something called COVID-21 uh, in about February or, or, or March or so, uh, and then that's going to cause, so this whole vaccine thing is just going to be a re recurring thing and recurring revenue that, you know, the taxpayers have to pay for because these vaccines are funded by the government, goes and pays them, uh, you know, pays the uh, vaccine manufacturers uh, for these vaccines that are killing us. And, you know, you guys earlier said that, you know, we're brought up a lot where science is settled, right? The science is settled. Well, let's look, it's it's what I call checkbook science, Okay. They pay for a result. And a perfect example that pretty much everybody knows about recently was when hydroxychloroquine came out in the news and it's bad, it's bad, it's bad. Cause I think Trump mentioned maybe hydroxychloroquine could work. And then the whole mainstream media picked it up and said, it's terrible. There was some money thrown at a study that was actually published in the Lancet Medical Journal. And it was front page news. The Lancet says hydroxychloroquine's bad and it's bad, it's bad. And then guess what? They asked for the, the they, they wanted the result, not the results, but all the information and the studies, and they weren't able to back it, and the Lancet had to retract that. And then you didn't see the mainstream media really talking about it, or maybe they played it, put the retraction in size six font on page 36. So that is right there. And they, what they did on that study is they took hydroxychloroquine, they used four times as much of it as they were supposed to, and they didn't put the key ingredient in, which was the zinc. The hydroxychloroquine takes the zinc into the cell, and the zinc actually stops the virus from replicating. So they didn't do hydroxychloroquine and zinc, which all those medical doctors that stood on the United States Supreme Court uh, courthouse steps and said one after another, you know, we've cured, you know, we had 50 people, we've got 100 people, we've got 60 people in our practice and 92 years old and hydroxychloroquine and zinc was working. So that science is settled. It's checkbook science. It's not, it's not real. Um, we've got pediatric well visits were down. Uh, the, the deaths plummeted for our children. 
And, um, and then the big fear thing, I think, is that if you guys look on the news, you see cases and deaths. And the cases are skyrocketing because there's more testing and because we have 80% false positives. Now, yeah, is there the one of the doctors here that can elaborate on the PCR tests I and how they elaborate. zoom in? And it's and after 35 you know, cycles, even Fauci said it was, yeah. you know, yeah. and useless. But they're, the FDA and the FDA of like Europe is saying you have to do, they're, they're making the, the testing agencies use 40 to 45 cycles. So, of course, we're going to have all these fa- false positives, fearing everybody into a vaccine and fearing them into that, you know, follow the money deal. It's a case-demic, and the PCR test, Kerry Mullis, there's videos of him saying that it's not a diagnostic tool. He conveniently died in August. How convenient. <laughs> and it, it, it's, um, like Tim said, it's set to anything above 35 is a false positive, and FDA um, sets it at, at 40. There was a lawsuit in Portugal this is the magic trick. This is a case-demic, and every day there's shattering records, um, but but uh, th- they're false, and, and the people are just scared with, with fear. I wanted to say also that uh, another side effect, Robert Kennedy um, has vocal dysphoria. He also had, uh, after his flu shot, that's why his voice sounds like that. Um, so keep but in yeah, mind, guys, when you get the test, if you, you got tested positive, find out how many cycles yes. or magnifications on that PCR test. Go get, for those of you that want to go get the shot, go get the shot. And then when they test you again, ask them how many cycles. Because David Icke came out and he said that they're probably going to do 10 cycles and then say, oh, it's magically gone. It's the testing. That's the, it's, the, it's like the Wizard of Oz behind the scenes yeah. doing the stuff. So you have to ask how many cycles was my test done? Originally, if did I test positive? And if you're going to get that stupid freaking shot, how many cycles afterwards? And I guarantee you, they're probably going to say there, less. There, and going, I wish I wouldn't have done it. There's a movement to uh, to to make it um, open how many cycles it is, but I, I would beckon for people to not get tested. I, I know two people who one two of them were dead that were fine, got the PCR test, got sick shortly afterwards. It crosses the blood brain barrier. The beginnings beginning tests by the CDC and who were tainted with the coronavirus. Dr. Carrie Maday said that some of the tests that she came across, some of the swabs had a a, a gelatin um substance over it so she was thinking of the hydrogel which is also a gelatinous substance and i i just wanted to say out there to people do not use gofundme gofundme is a pharmaceutical company they are partnered with with axel partners they are compromised they've banned me they've taken my money they've taken so many they banned zach when he was trying to help dr judy mikovitz they also um, shut that down. So that's not a good route to take for anyone, in my opinion. I have a question for the doctors about the antibody tests. Can they be a proxy for immunity, do you think? Or is that is the jury out? I mean, everything I've ever learned about germ theory is, or vaccines, is that the idea is once you build up the antibodies, you are forever resistant, or at least for 10 years, they kind of revise the chicken pox thing. So if we all went and got antibody tests for COVID, could you get that? If you got a positive, could that be a substitute for a vaccination? Could you make that argument? 
So initially, yes, that's what we were told. And that, and, and I believe I was practicing in Southern Connecticut at the time. And I truly believe that COVID rolled through there in November, December. I had a handful of pregnant women who tested negative for flu A, flu B, for strep. They coughed so much that they peed themselves because they were all pregnant. Everybody lived. It wasn't a problem. I had a handful of elderly folks who came through who didn't really have much in the way of respiratory challenges. But uh, it was interesting. They recovered from the, the the illness, quote unquote, and then they had several months of, of a little bit of accelerated dementia. And it was really interesting to watch the, these different subsets of the population kind of experience this novel virus um, the way that it kind of rolled through. So I tested everybody that came through my office that I suspected had covid because I believe that we had seen quite a few cases in December and January and February before we had the capability of testing. So I saw, I had about a 60-40, 60 percent uh, of the people who had it, suspected it, did test positive for antibodies and 40% did not. So we were told this was basically our get out of jail free card. Then um, convalescent plasma therapy rolled out and we were like, okay, well, we're going to, we're going to line it up. We're going to go give our plasma. We're going to help all the sick people. And then all of that uh, research and information kind of got squashed. And now it's um, this whole question about how long antibodies even last. And there's a big question about how COVID actually works because in general, uh, there's some research showing that COVID really works on T cells or, or really causes a T cell immunity and not a B cell immunity, which is what's required for antibody production. So I think the jury is still out. I think that anybody that's got antibodies that were tested was tested for it. Uh, I think it's a it's definitely worthwhile to hold on to, but I don't know that it's going to be your get out of jail free card for your passport or your new world order at this point. And I, Brian, maybe you can speak to that a little bit more, but I think that they're saying that even what they're doing with dogs, right? You give a dog one rabies shot and it should give them lifetime immunity, but you got to show up every three years because you're never sure at that exact moment when those antibodies are going to become undetectable. Well, did you witness anyone who got it twice? And that's my last question. I did not witness anybody to date that's gotten it twice. And they've, they've seen it just maybe one or two patients like that are in that particular category. Mm -hmm. And the virus does mutate quickly. So one of the things that they will use as ammunition to say that you need to get repeated vaccination uh, and they'll use ammunition against those who uh, of us, I got, I, I was antibody tested last week. I'm waiting for the results because I believe I got it fairly early on. California got an early wave in November and December of last year, and my family all got sick. So we're testing to see, but one of the things that they'll use against that, they'll say, they'll say look, the virus has mutated, so therefore your protection is inadequate, so now you have to get the updated vaccine. It's a profit enterprise, mm -hmm. and every time they update that vaccine, that's $37 billion dollars for the lead pharmaceutical companies that are producing that vaccine, you know, if they're saying that they're going to make 6 billion shots for the rest of the world. And so, you know, yeah, you can get an antibody test. I'm using that as a temporary get out of free, uh, get out of jail free card. But I think that, you know, if they want you vaccinated, they want you vaccinated and they're going to tie anything that they can, whether it's scientific or not, to that, and they will come up with excuses in, you know, to make well-intended non-scientific people try, you know, talk them into getting that vaccine. 
Here's a, here's a question from Canada, actually, because I, I ran some numbers that I found online of all the deaths in Canada currently. And, and what was interesting there is we found that currently over like the eight month uh, time frame that they have until July, these numbers, uh, there was a slight decrease in deaths in, in Canada. But what was more interesting was that all other causes of death, like heart disease and others, dropped drastically about almost 12,000 cases. Meanwhile, testing ramped up like heavily here in Canada, like, uh, you know, it's tenfolded almost. Uh, and so... Do you believe that, you know, the cases, uh, you know, it was 8,000 cases in COVID that was added and then 12,000 cases disappeared of the other diseases. Do you think that, you know, the, the testing and the cycles have a lot to do with those, you know, numbers that, you know, they come up with there? I wouldn't doubt it. Um, I, I know that when you, when you test PCR, you're testing for the presence of DNA or RNA. Uh, COVID is an RNA virus, and so therefore they do what's called um, RT-PCR, which is reverse transcriptase PCR, and that picks up RNA. But you're getting little bits and pieces of genetic information. You're not actually saying there is a live virus particle there. You're just saying that there's genetic information that would indicate that the virus particle may have been there. You may have had a subclinical case. You may have just been exposed to something that was very similar to COVID. Uh, the, the more that you run cycles of PCR beyond 30, 35, then um, the more that you're getting just spurious pieces of DNA. But PCR in general, it does not pick up live viruses. You cannot distinguish the difference between a live virus and a, and a killed fragment of a virus. So therefore, to, to say that somebody has an active case of COVID based on PCR is, is really crapshoot. It is, it is littered with false positives. And I believe that's one of the reasons why we've been touting this second wave to scare people into getting vaccinated so the profit-taking enterprise can get more money. And you know, the more tests that you do, the more people that will come back tested positive, regardless of whether they have COVID or not. And that will, that will ramp up the fear. So that's what you're seeing, and mortality rates have gone down. And let's not forget, as far as the PCR, you know, in Tanzania, they tested the piece of fruit and the goat that tested positive. Um, we have Eric Abadu that had one nostril had it, the other nostril didn't. Uh, Elon Musk had four tests, two positive, two negative in the same day. So uh, PCR is a joke. But um, I have a question for you guys. Uh, the idea of immunity enhancement. We have uh, lots of years of testing to, to make a coronavirus vaccine. And we did, when we did animal trials, lots of animals died. Now, is the mRNA vaccine that we're using, is this the same technology as those of all these trials? Because we skipped animal trials this time. Do we, are, we gonna, are people going to get vaccinated for this thing? And then when they actually are exposed to the disease, could it flip out and people start dying? It is the same spike protein. It is not. It is not an RNA vaccine that they tested on the animals before, but it encodes for the same spike protein that acts like a little chaperone. That it actually carries the coronavirus directly to the cell that it's supposed to infect. And so, yeah, we could have an an issue of an enhanced um, enhanced uh, uh, infectivity. Uh, based on those those chaperone proteins and based on antibodies actually, you know, carrying the coronavirus forward to the receptor, which will allow them entry into human cells. And so even though it's an mRNA vaccine and it is a new technology, it's still encoding for the same protein, 
that gave those results in animals. And also true what we had seen uh, back last year with the flu vaccine. We saw very, very high incidence of poor outcomes of people that had the flu vaccine and ended up contracting corona because of that, that the, the flu vaccine triggered the immune system enough to be able to identify the virus, but not to mount any immunity reaction toward it. So I don't know if it's it's the same. It's, it's definitely not the same technology because the flu vaccine doesn't use mRNA. But nonetheless, it, it's the same thing that you're speaking about, Ed, that here we have something that's going to trigger the immune system in a way that's not going to allow for immunity or protection. Yeah, and a couple other things. Uh, this vaccine agenda is also being uh, helping the transhumanism agenda, the tracking agenda. I mean, there's all these other things that are being pushed. I mean, the contact tracing, all this stuff is about tracking us, having full control of us. I mean, there's so many. I think you, you, Dr. Madea, it's it's a shame that she's she's been very outspoken about this. And by by the way, Miriam, amazing interview with her uh, on. We can we can't find it on YouTube, but we can find it. Uh, I believe she's on a uh, bit shoot and uh, Odyssey. I think I saw it maybe on. Thank Odyssey. you. Yeah, I did two two. We we did a second one to go a little further, uh, deeper into the ingredients and and the hydrogel and the and the fridge farms. Do Do you want to get into some of that? Some of the trans, some of the ingredients, some of the the tracking, all these other type of issues with the vaccine, Miriam. I I believe that. The, both doctors uh, covered it. Um, th they are to, in my opinion, to to, to track us. In Dr. Madey's uh, opinion, um, would would you agree, Dr. Kendra and Dr. Booker? Uh, absolutely. I mean, I really think this isn't about the vaccine. I, you know, we we had talked about this. I think on the last uh, Union of the Unwanted is, I was a good patriot for the first two weeks, and then I realized the whole thing was a big sham. And you know, when you start controlling people with fear, and you have a liability-free product like a vaccine, you can put anything you want in there. So it just enhances and enforces the the agenda of you know, total control, mind control, digital ID, digital currency. And I think that there's, it's a very real possibility or a very real probability that we're heading down that road. And it I just, you know, it doesn't have to be. I mean, think of what's happened over our population over the last 20 years where, you know, pharmaceutical, the pharmaceutical industry was broke in, in 1986 before they twisted Reagan's arm to sign that the liability free vaccine act. Then from there, it became the biggest funder of all media and, and a bulk of other industries. And because of that, we went from having a few pharmaceuticals to a few injectables. And now even on regular mainstream TV, you see all of these different injectables come into the office and get your shot one or you know twice a month for your biologic and for this. And it just kind of already um, grooms people to get really comfortable with getting jabbed on a regular basis. I, w I will say this, that it's incredulous that despite the fact that Fauci has said it doesn't even temper the ability, the infection rate. So it doesn't help with that. No. It doesn't really mitigate the symptoms. And you have to take another shot because it, it wears off. Well, where and, is the, the... And you're still in masks, remember? And, and you're, you're still st in masks. Yeah. 
I mean, and did, did yeah, did you guys see Care Mullins like the latest video that came out that he's just calling Fauci just an outright non, you know, doesn't know what he's doing. Uh, that is a fraud, basically. You know, that is, that should be, that should be a little bit like, you know, a warning signal to some people out there that are listening to the top doctor. How many warning signals do we have to, to, to share with the people? The fear is the real virus and uh, they've created demand. I mean, if I watch the NBC nightly news with Lester Holt, every day is shattering records. It's amazing. And they've created the demand. And then it'd be like, who's going to get it? This is in 1A and 1B and 1C. Oh, yeah, let's get it to granny, 90-year-old granny. And the second yeah, and person was William Shakespeare. And to yeah. Aboriginals here in Canada is getting in first, by the way. Say that again? Yeah. The Aboriginal, like they're pushing yeah. it out to all the Aboriginal communities here in Canada as well. They well, it's being marketed as racial justice. It's yeah, being yeah. marketed yeah. In, in such a, a disturbing way. They've gone into barbershops and rec centers and community centers and delivered uh, basically what amounts to like talking point briefings to the employees there in order for them to then turn around and discuss with their customers all of the nice series of talking points that they got on why they need to take a vaccine and why they need to wear a mask and why they need to just not ask questions because asking questions is treason, apparently. Mm -hmm. well, yeah, and we, we have here in Canada, we have uh, vaccine hesitancy uh, clinicians that, you know, if you, if you don't want to actually take the vaccine, you get sent by the doctors to these vaccine Counseling. hesitancy people. It's retraining insane. camps, yeah. <laughs> vaccine hesitancy, aka retraining camps. One of my patients is from Canada, and we she scheduled a visit literally to discuss this agenda 2021 that's being rolled out in Canada. She was beside herself. She has two kids, one that was injured by a vaccine, one that has some pretty substantial autoimmune stuff. She has to wear a mask all day at work. She ends up with lesions and virus, you know, expressions all over her face. She, they're really struggling. And she said, and they're building one of those fem whatever they called it it's not a fema camp but whatever they called it in canada literally in the woods 300 feet from her property line behind her back yeah door. no way i actually have the document so nobody believes me i did download the pdf because it's gone now yeah from the she, government's website. she sent it to me she yeah. sent it to me yeah so. good <laughs> <laughs> they're gonna yeah, call it the shielding know. approach here mm -hmm. the right. cdc said the shielding right. approach. Yeah, just on on the uh Vaccine. So our governor said she was going to be really nice and get out of the way and let the first 150,000 doses go to the people first. She's not going to. Oh, well, who, who's our governor? Let's put her on blast. Please. Kate Brown. Oh, Kate yeah. Brown. Governor Kate yeah. Brown, the, the illustrious Kate Brown. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, God. Uh, I think it's important for uh, when Mike was talking about this, about how to reach uh, norm, the James Corbett normie term. How to reach these people that are that are you know lining up for the vaccine? I think there's two things to remind them. One is that the, all the companies that are pushing making these vaccines are convicted felons. They've all been found guilty of felonies in, in courts. They've all paid billions and billions and billions of dollars in fines for things like price fixing, faulty uh, uh, illegal marketing, uh, illegal sales tactics. Every every trick in the book, they've been found guilty in court of that. So oh. that's one thing. <laughs> Yeah, and a, and a second uh, component of that is that if if the people are turning on to Lester Holt and thinking that they're going to get an accurate uh, batch of information about the vaccines, 
they're fooling themselves because big pharma is responsible for 60% of the ad revenue that the nightly news takes in. So they're never going to talk to you about the downside of it. Not the act, not the actual real downside. It might be some limited hangout about, you know, be careful if you have allergies or something, but it'll mm-hmm. never be the full, let's lay out all the, all the, all the downside to this technology because they have so much money at stake. So we're talking about corrupted industry, big pharma, the dirtiest industry on the planet, maybe. I mean, close to big tobacco and the arms industry, but in, in, in the conversation for sure. In conjunction with the mainstream media, which is also totally compromised and dirty, and then you, and then you attach billions of dollars on both ends that are at stake for keeping the scam going, for, keep, you know, for not discussing the downside to it, and you have a recipe for disinformation on a scale that is very tough for the average person to, to sift through and get to the real truth of it all. And then, and then of course, you take into effect that, that the social media and the video platform uh, companies are just blacklisting anybody that's talking about this. So it's, it's a dangerous time for people, people searching for information. They're not going to know where to find it. They'll mistakenly think that they'll get it on their nightly news and they just won't. Well, I got I, I, I to step about the China money that's being funneled into, uh, I mean, they've already bought up a, a good load of our country anyway, but they funneled a ton of money into Pfizer. It's, it's the Pfizer vaccine is a Chinese vaccine. I mean, it's only fitting that with a Chinese virus, you should be getting a Chinese vaccine. But I mean, you're absolutely right. People are, there's so much information out there that people are drowning in the fact that, that, that there is no quality it, uh, facts, it's all lies and propaganda. And it's all funneled, in my opinion, by by China, because like you said, it's a multifaceted, forgive the pun, kraken that has a tentacle in all of these aspects because it's it's the best marketing plan that, that exists because you're getting it on every level. You're getting it in the public schools. You're getting it at your doctors. You're getting it at the water cooler. You see it in the ads in the magazine. I, I mean, why wouldn't you think that the information that's out there is verifiable? It's everywhere. I wanted to say one of the things that Dr. Madej and I, I asked her what her thoughts were. I, my impression or my feeling or my question is, are they going to roll out a whole bunch of placebos in the first um, iteration to gain the confidence um, if, they're, if they're shooting up granny? Um, do any, did it cross your mind, any of you, that that might be a strategy? Well, yeah. they certainly rigged the books to make sure that the recommended dosage was a half dose up front on one of those vaccines that had the meningitis as mm-hmm. the other one. I don't know if that was the AstraZeneca one or the Pfizer one. It was not the Moderna one. And they did it. They said, oh, it's, you know, some weird fluke that you only take half one first, but it's better because people will get super sick from a full dose. So it's better to only give them a half dose. So in keeping with that, I don't know if they do a real placebo, but I also wondered if people have heard about the, what's the result of the Russian vaccine. I think the Russian vaccine is a conventional vaccination and I think it's been around. Did any, has anyone been? Well, they, they actually, uh, here's one that I heard today and I think Jason Burmis, yeah, Jason was actually covering it where it's, you know, the Sputnik V vaccine as they call it over in Russia. Uh, they recommend in Russia, which is the biggest, heaviest alcohol drinking nation on earth, that you don't drink alcohol for the next two months after a shot. Huh, good luck. Yeah. In December, <laughs> never going to happen. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> it's always night there. <laughs> 
So I think we've established that uh, vaccines are probably not that good. Yeah. <laughs> right? I mean, again, common sense, like you just ask somebody, hey, you know what mercury is? You know, that stuff they used to, the, the people put on the hats, the hat makers, they, that's why they come up with the term mad as a hatter because they lost their brain because mm-hmm. mercury is one of the most toxic elements in human history, but it's in supplements. Would you put aluminum into your body and nano-sized aluminum particles? No. Then why would you take a shot? How about formaldehyde? You want to put formaldehyde in your body? No. Well, then why are you taking shots? How about polysorbate 80? You want to put that in your body? Then why are you giving your kids, your kids vitamin, allowing your children to get vitamin K shots when they go to their well visits? MSG. Everybody knows about that. That's in there. There's all these ingredients that are in shots. Why would we put it in our freaking body? It's stupid. Okay. They're all acid-based. They're not carbon-based. We have carbon-based bodies. End of story. They make people freaking sick. Brian was on here with a vaccine-injured child. This isn't rocket science. We need to be really now spending time and educating people on how to boost your freaking immune system so you can achieve natural herd immunity for life. Use your built-in interferon system that's part of your body to build up a natural, long-term, viable protection for life. It's like, why do they have booster shots? Because the freaking shots don't work. They don't last for life. That's why they call it booster, all right? People need to lose weight and they need to get their head clear. They got to get these toxic chemicals out of their body. That's in the food. It's in the water. It's in the air we breathe. It's in, it's in makeup. It's in, I mean, why are we putting toothpaste in our mouth? If it says harmful, if swallowed, please contact the poison control center. Oh yeah. Isn't it? Aren't you swallowing a little bit of that shit every day? Or, you know, it just blows my mind. People are just uneducated because mainstream media has been controlling all this. And it's up to people like us to educate people in a nice way but give them the facts and say, look, you need to get off your ass and go do some research like I did. I, I don't want to spend my time doing all this. I'd rather be outside doing something else right now or be in my family. But I feel a moral obligation to tell people about truth, freedom and health and what's really going on out there. And getting people to take responsibility for their health is the only way we're going to dig out of this deal. It's really, it's really education. I also wanted to point out my understanding w- was with the Pfizer, the inactive ingredients were, were not listed. Correct me if I'm wrong. And that as long as it's under EUA, that it won't be mandated. I read that as well. And uh, I don't know if it was Azar who, who said that. Have you come across that information? As long as it's under EUA, it won't be forced. Um, I, I, I mean, I've heard lots and lots of politicians say that it won't be mandated. They just keep, uh, their, their line is we'll have enough vaccine available for everybody who wants it. But again, the biggest problem is, is the political swamp. And, you know, as I had spoken earlier about what was going on in Connecticut is you have all these elected officials and then you have all these appointees and it's the appointees that actually move the chess pieces. So you get the daycare providers get a letter. Oh, you can't have any kids in your daycare unless they have a flu shot. Oh, you can't have any kids in school unless they have a flu shot. So that's not coming from the government. That's not coming from elected officials that every two or four years have some level of accountability with the general population that is either electing them or electing somebody else into the position. It's these other people behind the scenes. So mandate, I think, has become a really scary word for people. And and even people who are pro-vaccine in this argument or pro-gun or whatever, having the word mandate, having the government tell you what you can and can't do is, is scary and it gets people's hackles up. But that's not what's going on. What's going on is all these behind the scenes, smoke and mirrors, you know, Wizard of Oz type stuff where 
well, you can't get on an airplane unless you have that vaccine, or you can't do this unless you have that vaccine. And that's no mandate that the government's put out. That's just a letter that, you know, came from somebody who got their pockets lined by a pharmaceutical company. Yeah, the, the biggest province here in Canada, Ontario, uh, recently actually came out with a, a plan of a proof of vaccination cards mm-hmm. that they will, you know, adopt into the... I, I do believe, like, a, a, some people that have lived long enough, I heard some people talking about the 70s and 60s and 70s, that they had these types of vaccine cards in their passports or with them at the time. Uh, I don't know if anybody of you remember anything like that or if you could confirm or not that, you know, that existed because I'm... I'm uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm too, I think I'm too young. The yellow fever have one. I think you had to have one for certain travel. Yeah, if you went to certain countries where there were like origin specific illnesses or viruses, then you couldn't enter them. You couldn't leave your own country unless you'd been vaccinated to go there. I'm fairly certain England and Great Britain had them for polio too for a while. I just want to be real clear. Uh, there is no evidence to suggest that any of these vaccines stop you from spreading this virus. So this this is all based on there's no common sense to this whatsoever because we could get everybody vaccinated and we're all still spreading this thing around like that. Yeah, and you still got to wear a mask. And you still wear a mask. Yeah. yeah. So so I mean I think that the main argument people at this point I mean they're they're fed up. They like just give me the vaccine so I can get back to life. But this doesn't affect we're going to still have masks, we're going to still social distance, we're going to still be contact trace and we're going to still be getting more vaccines. Well, Bill Gates has been so brazen as to yesterday saying, uh maybe early 2022 by the way that's right. going to be uh precursored by 6 months of no bars or restaurants at all now that we got Joey B in there. Mm-hmm. I I mean guys I'm going to say it like again, the, the we have to just go into each hall of government and hang out. And and we got to have hundreds and thousands. Every single local government, we had 500 to 1,000 people in each state. It's over. They want us to work from home. We'll work from there. We got Wi-Fi hotspots. Make them show force. There will be sheriffs that are with us. There will be law enforcement that are with us. There will be military that are with us. We have to be peaceful. This is a civil rights issue. It's not going anywhere. They're announcing it to you. I mean, Bill Gates has announced this, you know, pretty much from the beginning, but now he's literally saying into the beginning of 2022, we're still not there. We're still not there after all of this Johnny nonsense. I don't know what to say. You know, I was just, uh, I drove back from DC last night, you know, 13 hours. And, you know, even when I was putting all these people on the spot, I'm like, it doesn't matter who gets in on January 20th. If we don't have the halls of government before then, we are all fucked in a way we cannot imagine. So I got I got about 150 strong here in Iowa. I, I should have 500 to 1,000 in the next couple of days. And we're doing it. I don't know when we're doing it, but we're doing it. And if it's got to be one state at a time, it, it's got to be. because. And if this gets banned everywhere, I don't really care. You know, let them show force against citizens, business owners. We got, we got a, a bar out in Chicago that's just done. And I'm, and you know what I'm doing, I'm going to say this openly organized crime. We need you more than ever. They are going to take you out of your fucking cut. Like you've never been taken out before. This is where they cut you out. They've worked with you for years. Okay. It's over for you. This is the track trace database society where you don't get to launder money, where they don't need you to assassinate people, where they don't need you to coerce. So now's the time to step up and join us with your bars, your restaurants, your casinos, and your businesses that we all know you own because they are about to take most of you out too. 
So that's how I feel about this. I think that's a, a real perspective. And it, again, it wouldn't take that many people. Let, let's all stream live from there. You know, if you got 50 people out of that 500 to 1,000 streaming live, their moms, their dads, their uncles, their aunts, their grandparents, how can they stop it? They, get, they have to censor every single one of us every single minute on every single platform. Well, you, you would also have to come in with your own ability to broadcast because shut down Wi-Fi in a second, man. Listen, hotspots are not that tough. You can get three-month cards for 40 bucks that have 15 gigs of data. You got to yeah. You just have to. You just have to find the workaround for the one car that shows up with a signal jammer. Listen, here's the deal. Yeah. Well, they're gonna have to. They'll have to jam T-Mobile, Verizon, AT&T, as many as they can, and then we'll find another way. I guarantee it. Listen, they can't stop us if we just take that step. And I'm telling you, man, we got we got a month. We got a month before we kick this off, because at the end of the day, you know they'll use force. We got people knocking on doors at Santa Clara, the poorest neighborhoods, for mandatory tests. I'll tell you what happens if a brown shirt shows up to my house. First thing I'm going to say is, you need to leave right now. You have no jurisdiction. I'm not going to tell you again nicely. Please exit. If they say something else, I'm going to say, all right, it's the last time I'm going to be nice to you. But you need to go. If you have to call law enforcement, that's your prerogative. Now it's time to go. The third time they say something to me, I'm going to say to them, look, I don't know if you realize it or not, but you are part of the problem. You are a literal slave wrangler for the system, and you will be betrayed too. You are a disgusting human being at this point, and I can't believe you are taking a paycheck to go door to door. And, and I'm going to film it too. I'm going to put them on blast. I'm sure they'll have a mask on because everybody's got a fucking mask on now, and you can't yeah. really even identify these monsters. But I'll tell you what, man. I've never been so hyped up in my life. It's on, and these motherfuckers know it's on. So I'll let you know how that goes because I live right next door to Santa Clara County. I'm in Santa Cruz <laughs> County. I mean, I, I, you know, it's it, it's 15 minutes in one direction. And as Santa Clara goes, Santa Cruz does. Uh, so so I'll I'll be, I'll be able to find out. I'm gonna guess relatively shortly uh, because if they're starting with the pores, that's me. <laughs> well, again, they're not telling you that they're, we, maybe we'll give you $1,500 if you take it. They're testing right? orders for that universal basic income that I, I, I've been saying again and again. It doesn't end well for us. It's an automation nation at the end of the Guys, I just want to introduce uh, Dr. Scott Jensen. We actually had Dr. Brian Hooker on and, uh, and, and Brian Festa from the CT Freedom Alliance, just letting you know, Dr. Jensen, that uh, you know, a couple of people left, but we're still here, and I'm glad you showed up. I know you're busy with the Senate. Uh, I didn't mean to cut you off, Jason, uh, but I know uh, uh, Dr. Scott Jensen's very busy, and I know his story is very important. So if you guys aren't familiar, familiar with his story, can uh, Dr. Jensen, can you give us just a brief background of how you got thrown into this whole uh, coronavirus uh, debate? I'd be glad to. And thanks for uh, having me on. And thank you to everyone for letting me share a little bit of my story. I grew up in a little town in southern Minnesota named Sleepy Eye. And I was a middle child of five. And I, uh, I'm a family doc and I love my work. Uh, on the way to getting into medicine, I was in dental school. And then I went into the seminary because I found that I didn't like teeth. But anyway, I'm in medicine and I love it. And uh, five years ago, I got recruited to run for the Senate. And so I've been in the Senate. And I guess I've been a little bit of a uh, a maverick at times. I'm willing to color outside the lines. 
And on April 3rd, I got an email from the Minnesota Department of Health that basically said that um, if we're going to be filling out a death certificate that had to do with COVID-19, that this is the way we should do it. They knew that we'd always been doing it this way, but the rules were different. And so I read this document, and then it referred me to a seven-page document with the CDC. And basically what we were told is the rules that had been governing how to complete a death certificate for the last 17 years were being pushed aside if COVID-19 were part of it. Essentially what we were told is if COVID-19 is thought to potentially be the reason, maybe be the reason, probably be the reason, more often than not the reason, then go ahead and put it down. And it went on to say, if you think that COVID-19 is maybe a contributing condition, don't put it down as a contributing condition, put it down on the cause of death line. And that's never been done before. And in the same document, it said, but oh, by the way, if it's emphysema or asthma that is thought to be a contributing condition, do what you've always done. Put that in the little box over to the left, part two. And I said, well, this isn't right. So I ran up the flagpole and I said, you know, we don't need to be coached to massage as to how to do this. We'll, we'll do it the way we've always done it, which the, basically the CDC says that what you should try to do when you complete a death certificate is identify the initiating event that led to the sequence of events that resulted in death. So if a person has a heart attack on a Thursday and uh, on Sunday they get a stent and they're found to have blockage, and then a month later they get congestive heart failure, and a month later they get pneumonia and die, the death certificate shouldn't say pneumonia as the underlying cause of death. The underlying cause of death, which is the all-important thing we want to know, because that's what gets tabulated in national data and World Health Organization data, the underlying death in that situation would be coronary artery disease, which led to an MI, a myocardial infarction, or a heart attack, that's our term, heart attack, which led to congestive heart failure, which led to pneumonia, which was the immediate cause of death. But again, the all-important cause of death is the underlying cause of death, the bottom line listed. Now, if in that situation, when the person had pneumonia and they were struggling with it, all of a sudden they became diagnosed with, if you will, COVID-19, what would that change? Well, if they were sort of already on the way out with the pneumonia that might have been caused by streptococcus, then the COVID-19 diagnosis might be nothing to do with the sequence of events. So you might just put it in part two as a contributing condition. You could ignore it completely because it might have been just a positive lab test, but nothing to go with it. Or you could, if you wanted to, you could say that the pneumonia led to a weakening or something and COVID-19 came on top of that. But we were being told, you could think about putting this as this is what they died of, the underlying cause of death. And in fact, in Minnesota, I just went through 3,000 death certificate tabulations last week. And out of the 2,800 death certificate data points I looked at, only 2,000 of them should the COVID-19 have been listed as the underlying cause of death. And yet we were being told in Minnesota at that point in time, those a few weeks ago, that we had 2,800 COVID deaths. Well, no, we didn't. We had 2,000. It was being inflated by almost 50%. So I made a I made a deal out of it, and uh, Laura Ingram had me on Fox News, and that changed my life. And next thing I know, I learned that there are people out there that don't like it when you speak to the contrarian narrative. So all of a sudden, I had bureaucrats and fellow physicians and politicians and epidemiologists and departments of health all coming after me. And then, lo and behold, my medical license was being investigated. It was unclear whether or not I'd be able to continue to practice medicine. Never mind the fact that I'd been a professor at the medical school for the last 30 years and 
I've been doing this for 35 years, all of a sudden, because I was spreading misinformation by comparing the flu to COVID-19, which is what Dr. Fauci and Dr. Osterholm had done. It wasn't okay if I did it. And so anyway, on July 5th, I put out a video that said, folks, I'm being investigated and I'm at risk for losing my license. And I honestly think that if it can happen to me, I think it can happen to anybody, whether you're a teacher or a nurse or a hairstylist, anybody that needs a license or a certificate that has to go to some sort of government agency for approval to do what you do for a vocation or a livelihood. And uh, that video ended up being seen by 22 million people. And I ended up becoming someone Dr. Fauci refers to as a distraction. That's my story. Scott, thanks for coming on, brother. Really appreciate you sharing your story. That's really good. And just, just so you guys know, he, he got Family Physician of the Year Award in 2016, which is not an easy uh, award to get. Yeah. So let's also get into another thing that people, uh, I mean, they, they call the conspiracy theory, but this is actually true that there, I mean, it was a, like a cocktail of ingredients that would lead to like disastrous outcomes. And the combination of giving this leniency or this very blurry lines on what you can consider a COVID death or not. And then the fact that the hospitals, I mean, people have to think about the height of the lockdown were very slow because they were basically telling people if it's not life or death, don't go to the hospitals. So you combine those two things, then you com combine some financial incentives from the hospital's perspective to, to kind of push COVID deaths. Like, can, can you expand on some of this, Dr. Jensen? Yeah, absolutely. I used to give coding lectures around the country because I've always been fascinated by the ridiculous way we do things in medicine. And I can't believe how, how high our prices are. But part of it's because physicians never know what we're charging. We just put codes. So I've, I've done coding lectures for a long time. But what we were told was that, well, let's just go to Medicare patients. Most hospitals that get paid for taking care of a Medicare patient will say, uh, We'll say Billy Jones. So Billy Jones is on Medicare. He goes in with pneumonia. Whether he stays in the hospital for two days or five days, the hospital will get a lump sum. That's called a DRG or a diagnosis-related group. It's also referred to as a PPS, uh, prospective payment system. But you don't get to bill for everything you did. You don't get to bill for seven overnights in the hospital. You say this patient had pneumonia and Medicare will reimburse you a chunk of money and it's about $5,000, 4,600 in this area. But if it's pneumonia and COVID-19, then you get $13,000. And to add COVID-19, what do you need? Well, the best way to add COVID-19 is if you have a laboratory confirmed test. But we were actually told that you don't have to have a laboratory confirmed test to diagnose COVID-19. If you have epidemiologic evidence, such as community transmission within the area, or you have subjective symptoms that are consistent with COVID. What are the three main symptoms? Shortness of breath, fever. If you have one of those, you're good to go. So you got community transmission rolling around your hospital. You got cough or shortness of breath or fever, maybe two of the three. You can diagnose COVID-19. So if you put that on your discharge summary, then the hospital gets $13,000 instead of $5,000. And then... If during the hospitalization, you happen to use a ventilator for a period of time, then you get $39,000. And this makes sense because ventilators are expensive. and There's a lot of work and it takes a very technical uh, type of uh, ICU nurse to know how to do the, the adjustments and all that. These fees I mentioned don't include the doctor's fees. So I put that out there again on uh, national news and 
the USA Today did a fact check on me and they sort of grudgingly had this long article. And in the end they said, well, we checked with Medicare, we checked with these doctors and what we find out is it looks like the doctor from Minnesota is correct. So that was nice. I felt sort of, if you will, exonerated. But we didn't even, I didn't even, And just to review, the CARES Act came from the feds, $2 trillion. Of the $2 trillion to deal with COVID, about $140 billion went to healthcare. But of that, a big chunk went to high-impact centers. What do I mean by that? $22 billion were distributed to hospitals. And there were two kinds of hospitals. One was the first high-impact distribution, which... In order to qualify from June 10th, you had to have 160 COVID-19 admissions, not deaths, not COVID alone. I mean, it could be heart attack, COVID-19, pneumonia, it could be congestive heart failure, COVID-19. But if you had 161 admissions, then you got $77,000 per admission additional which oftentimes for many of these hospitals came to $20, $30 million. Then the second distribution for high-impact hospitals was they downgraded. You only got $50,000 per admission, in addition to what you've already been paid. And you had to hit 100, 100 admissions in order to qualify for that group. So we're talking about some big dollars. We have created some real incentives. And I've called hospital administrators and said, well, how do you feel about this? And they're nervous because they'd like to have the money, but they don't want to do something that would cause them to be audited next year. And I think that, frankly, our policymakers at some point in time are going to have to demand an audit because what we're seeing is wholesale looting. We really are. Now, does that mean doctors are fraudulently miscoding? No, it doesn't mean that, nor does it mean hospitals are. But if you're at a situation, say, gee, we do have transmission in the community, we do have cough and low-grade fever, and we know that we get false negatives sometimes, we're going to put probable COVID-19, which is U07.2 for a code. If it's laboratory confirmed, it's U07.1. But in America, U07.2 defaults to U07.1. So if you put probable, you get confirmed, and you get paid as if it was a positive laboratory test. This is the kind of stuff people don't realize. And we have created a situation where we're encouraging people to fudge. So what does the the audit process look like? And what is the likelihood of an audit being put forth in the public? And and what kind of education campaign does it take to get the public to call for an audit and demand to be able to look at, at the results? A great question. Well, Dr. Jensen, can I just say something before you answer that? This is a formula that the CDC has been using for the flu vaccine and for flu cases for many, many years as well. Probable, possible, the same level of default is done with that as well. So it's it's something that's similar in their playbook as far as using, I don't want to use the word confabulation, but to use your word, the default. But the big difference is they never told us to put influenza on the sequence of events on the death certificate uh, if we had not thought that influenza was a part of that chain of events. Then influenza would go in the part two contributing condition. And in the hospital 
in terms of getting a $50,000 or a $77,000 add-on, that was never done either. So while there are some similarities in terms of being allowed to be squishy, because we don't even diagnose flu, we actually diagnose ILI, which is influenza-like illnesses. We we don't necessarily bother to test everybody with the flu. I mean, if we've got a third-grade class with 10 out of 15 kids with the flu and five more come down with similar symptoms. We're sort of saying, oh, they got the flu, but there was no financial incentive to do anything different either. But now getting back to this audit, I know what we're going to run into. People are going to, they're going to do the slow walk. They're going to say, well, we can't do an audit. My stars, you know, it's going to cost millions of dollars. And you know, how could we do it? Well, we've got all kinds of students that are PhD candidates or master's candidates. Why don't we get every state to get, 10 to 20 of them from their colleges and universities and say, we are going to provide an opportunity for you. We're going to provide you a ready-made topic for your thesis. This is what you're going to do. And you take a bunch of smart 22 to 40-year-old people, they get together and they go through, and I actually ran the numbers in terms of how many students you'd have to have and how many death certificates or discharge summaries you'd have to run through. And it would be about 40 per day if they worked on it for a month. And then they could go ahead and start working on their paper. But the bottom line is, we need to do this. In New York State, what they did, in New York City, what what they did was they kicked their COVID-19 death count from 7,000 to 10,700 overnight because they decided that the difference in deaths that had been occurring for a given period of time in years past compared to 2020 was 3,700. And since it was a delta, it was a difference, it must have been COVID-19. And so they, they bumped theirs up. Pennsylvania went the other way. The coroners pushed back and said, these deaths that you put as COVID-19 aren't COVID-19. And so they reduced their count by two, 200, I think. Uh, Colorado reduced theirs. Kentucky reduced theirs. The bottom line is we're not playing apples to apples, oranges to oranges, so we're going to have to audit. Scott, I, want- do you, I got a quick question. Do you think similar things, like I, I'm basically neighbor to you with Manitoba. I live in Manitoba, Canada. Do you know if similar things are happening in Canadian hospitals as well? Great question. I just I saw a document the other day, and it was out of England, so I can't speak to Canada. But what it said was that the uh, United the UK, the United Kingdom, had, had the exact same thing that was going on in America. We, they had been sort of told you don't have to hit the same standards that you have been hitting in the past uh, for diagnosis, precision, and specificity. And so they were bemoaning the same thing. And it made it very clear in this article, I'm trying to think who wrote the article. It was, a, it was like a 25-page timeline of what had happened. And it was extremely well done. I, I forget the author. Thank you. I wanted to read something really quick that uh, is on Robert F. Kennedy Jr.'s Instagram. He says, CDC has officially acknowledged that it has quietly created a new mortality category, PIC, which groups pneumonia and influenza and COVID together and reports them as COVID deaths. It appears that the new classification gives officials imprimatur to a gimmick that CDC adopted early in the pandemic of counting pneumonia and influenza deaths as COVID in order to inflate mortality numbers. So is this another trick that they're doing to try and lump everything in together, call it COVID and justify this gigantic uh, charade that we're participating in? I'm familiar with the PIC category, but I'm not familiar with what you said that they would literally lock, stock and barrel say 
the PIC number is the COVID-19 number. I've not specifically seen that documentation. I'm not questioning you, but if you had it, if you could send it to me, I'd love to have that, but I've not seen that. Sure. It, it came out 16 hours ago. He, he put it out 16 hours ago, so it's relatively new in terms of that. And he said that the CDC quietly did it. So I, all I have to go off of is, is his Instagram uh, post of that. So it was that for what it is. That article I mentioned before that I thought was so good, it was Ely, I think, E-A-L-Y. It was, a, was the chief author with maybe about 15 contributing authors. But if you wanted to Google that, Dr. Ely, and that was a very, very good, just a timeline of everything that's happened what, especially in the United States, how we literally saw our data and the quality of our data corrupted. The CDC, besides what you were talking about there, Charlie, the CDC months ago said they're not recording flu data this year. So, Or Lyme disease. Or Lyme disease. That's an unnatural reaction to this, is it not? I mean, is this, this is, this is, is that not just an indicator that there's something criminally wrong with what the CDC is doing, that they've just magically decided this year, all of a sudden, we're not going to count flu deaths? I mean, if that's not ringing an alarm bell to people, even the most casual observer, that there's something going on there, I don't, I really don't know what is. It's, we just decided the flu doesn't exist anymore. Oh, but COVID does. I mean, is this not just so obvious to people or is the fluoride working? That's a great word you chose to use. You said this is an unnatural reaction. I have said this is the way we've responded is confounding to me, but I like your word unnatural. I can't necessarily jump into the criminalizing word because I think sometimes people are dumber than rocks. And uh, honest to goodness, I don't, I don't understand how the CDC can do what it's done. I mean, when they decided a while back to commingle their data between PCR tests for acute disease and looking in the rearview mirror with the serology test for antibodies, those are two different tests. I mean, if you get a PCR test that's positive, then uh, a month later, you should be able to get a serology test and it should be positive by rights. And they just commingled them together. And epidemiologists and infectious disease people around the country said, what the devil are you thinking? You can't do that. You have to keep these things broken apart. These, these don't fit. I mean, there's been one snafu and hiccup on it after another on the CDC. And they've got a lot of a lot of work to do to try to rebuild the public trust. Hey Scott, on the PCR test, how many cycles or magnifications before it's you know it's no good? Well, the standard practice is if you're in a lab and you go more than 25 times, you're going to have a low expectation that you're going to be able to grow that virus out on a culture. So in a lab, they say 25. But in terms of you know, you have to realize, you know, Kerry Mullis, who came up with this, he did not want this technology necessarily used for diagnosis of viral, you know, viral diseases, but it has become that in many situations. But nevertheless, I think that uh, a, a threshold of 32 or 34 makes way more sense. And if you're above 35, you're asking for trouble, you're asking for corrupted data. And in Minnesota, we're running all of ours at 38 to 44. All, and now, again, we don't set it. It's usually set at, at the developer's place or the manufacturer of the test. They're the ones who set it. But the FDA allows it. And um, so I think if you're over 38, you're really saying, you know, we're not that concerned about specificity and sensitivity. And that's why some of those places where they've done a 1,000 positive tests, if they would have cut it off at 32 instead of going to 40 or 42, 850 of those people that have been told they had COVID would have been told they had a negative test. So again, back to the gentleman who spoke earlier, this is absolutely an unnatural way to proceed, but this is where we're at. 
What also, Scott, do you think about when you see the the news every night and it says cases and it says deaths? Now, deaths is understandable, but can you explain to people that might be confused about what the difference between an actual case is versus a positive test that's we know it's manipulated now and probably has about 80% false positives because they're zooming in too much? But what's the difference between an actual case and tested positive so people can understand and not because cases sound scarier than tested positive. So I think that's why they're using it. And yet, if you actually look at cases and tests in terms of how the terminology is used around the country, there are some states that will actually identify a case as someone who's never even been tested, but they have been in contact with someone who did test positive. I believe Texas uh, might have had that for a while. So I, I think for me as a physician, if, if I say that... Uh, I have a COVID-19 case. I'm going to basically say this person has symptoms consistent with COVID and a laboratory test. Now, if I have a PCR test, which is basically the gold standard, even though it's got a lot of inaccuracy to it, if I've got a PCR test, cool, I'm done. If it's a antigen test, which is typically reading off of the spike protein on the virus, then you have a fair amount of false negatives. So if you get a negative, you can't rely on it. If you get a positive, you get to rely on it. So if you get a negative, then you're supposed to do a PCR test as well. So again, we see that heavy slant towards let's get as many cases as we can. So to me, I think the other thing people need to think about, so for me, and when I, if I say I've got John Doe, he's a patient of mine, you know, he, he's a COVID-19 case, that would mean that he's got a positive test. But I think the other thing that people need to realize is when we talk about cases, if we talk about case fatality rate, that's different than infection fatality rate. And that's why you see CFR and IFR. And a lot of people don't, they get mixed up. Case fatality rate is how many cases do we have based on a positive test? Well, infection fatality rate is extrapolating from the number of cases we have. How many people do we think are out there that are infected but haven't been tested? haven't wanted to be tested. And in many situations, you remember Santa Clara, for every laboratory confirmed test, there were another 50 to 85 people infected. That's why we do these seroprevalence testing things where we go into a community and we draw everybody's blood to find out how many have antibodies to the disease and how many, how does that compare to how many have been, if you will, diagnosed with COVID-19. But when you have the infection fatality rate, you take the cases and you multiply that maybe in our state, Minnesota, we think that for every identified confirmed case, there's probably 10 more that haven't been identified. But so when you say, well, the case fatality rate is say 2.6%, well, the infected fatality rate would be, you'd have to move the decimal because you have 10 more. So then your infected uh, fatality rate would be 0.26%. And at that point in time, now you're starting to move into that range of what does the robust bad flu season look like? 0.1, 0.2%. So some people make the argument that the flu, it, those numbers are also inflated. Uh, what's your opinion on that? Because some people have said, oh, well, you know, the, the everybody compares it to the flu, but the flu's also been inflated throughout the years. I know there is some evidence of that, that that is a, a issue that they also inflate those numbers. But for Basically, it seems like similar reasons for state funding and and a bunch of other financial reasons. Have you uh, looked into any of that, Dr. Jensen? 
Not specifically. I mean, I, because of COVID, I've certainly gone back and looked at the last five, 10 years in terms of what's happening with influenza. But influenza, there's never been such a fear-mongering, mainstream media kind of campaign to put us where we are today. We don't do the lockdowns, the school closures, and, and tell everybody they got to wear a mask or they're going to go, they're going to have a 90-day jail sentence or a $1,000 fine. But I think when you look at the fact that we don't diagnose influenza based on positive tests, we, we do illy, I-L-I, influenza-like illnesses. And so when we're rip-roaring in the middle of an influenza epidemic in February, we're not necessarily restricting our counts to positive tested cases. We're we're lumping everybody together. And if the doctor says, well, this is, this appears to be an influenza-like illness, they'll put influenza down. And certainly that would argue that we've inflated it because some of those are not going to be influenza influenza illnesses. Some of those are going to be just your rhinovirus, your common cold virus that looks like a you know, runny nose, sneezing, aching. Some people get a cold and it's just sneezing and runny nose. Other people might get low-grade fever, a little bit of a sore throat. They might even feel crappy. And then you start to say, gee, is it a cold or is it influenza? And we're not trying to make a distinction because either way, the treatment's the same. Well, it's funny that you get in trouble for talking about these things. When I'm, I remember during a press conference, Dr. Burke said on the press conference, we're being very liberal with our COVID deaths. People who die with and by the virus are being counted. Like she said it in the open and yet you say it and you get in trouble. I mean, it's just, it's outrageous. In Portugal, uh, I know Miriam brought it up earlier on the show. You know, they did have a lawsuit where they end up, uh, basically they, they show, they, they got, determined that you can't force quarantine somebody who tested positive with a PCR test because people, I mean, which is fair because you, you look at all the harm that's being caused by all these lockdowns, these restrictions, the businesses, suicide, uh, addiction, all these other issues. I mean, in Italy, they had a study where I, I don't, I'm going to get the number wrong, but it's, it was very high, like 70, 80% or maybe even higher uh, of people who they said died of COVID were most likely going to die this year anyways. There were people who already were very sick, had multiple issues, all this stuff. I mean, that's something else that we're not really taking consideration is how many of these people were already at the end of the line. What, what's really bothersome is the fact that not, you know, six months ago, nine months ago, if we said that 99% of people who get COVID will be okay. You know, if that was a conspiracy theory nine months ago. And now we can openly say it and it's fine. How many times do people do the, the mainstream doctors or the mainstream scientists have to get things wrong before we start questioning things? Because like you said, it's unfortunate, but it does seem like there's just a lot of dumb people or I shouldn't even say dumb. I think in many cases, there's a lot of people who were raised to be um, law abiding citizens who are good people and they just want to do what they're told who want to believe that the politics or the the doctors who have those PhDs and whatnot, that they care about their well-being. And, and people forget there's a lot of other things going on behind the scenes. And you being in kind of both fields, being a senator, being a physician, you, you see that. Absolutely. And, and when I made the comment earlier about, you know, some, some people are dumber than a rock, most of these are politicians uh, because what happens is they get this election certificate and their head swells. And they think that all of a sudden, because they got the 51% of the vote, that they got smarter. Well, frankly, that, that makes no sense at all. What it really means is 
they should get busy and start reading more and learning more because they're probably, you know, a duck out of water and they've got a lot to learn. But we don't do that. You know, it's such an ego-driven area. It's just, it's toxic. But I guess, you know, to your, to your general question, this is such a bizarre reaction that we've done. And it's hard for, I'm going to guess, a lot of people on your show right now to get your arms around, how could we react this way? And, and I, I certainly have that challenge at night. I, I mean, I have, you know, if you look at my extended family, I've got people in my extended family that couldn't view this more differently than I do. And that means that I have to pause because they're not, they're not people that I thought can't handle deep scientific discussions and disciplines. These are people I respect. And yet, and I hope that they can give me that same, you know, reciprocal respect. And so we're sitting there trying to deal with people that are on the opposite side of this great chasm. And we're, we're all wondering, how can we be this far apart? Uh, it is just astonishing. I, I think we're going to give psychiatrists and psychologists uh, food for thought for centuries. Well, one thing that a lot of people have been talking about, about uh, the trauma that adults and children are going through, I personally have been dealing with it of late where I, uh, you know, I've been doing my best for my kids to, to be kind of not exposed to any of this nonsense, live as normal and, and laugh and be kids because that's what they should be doing. They shouldn't be stressing about this nonsense. And, uh, and recently, my son's been having nightmares of police officers chasing him because he's not wearing a mask. And it's like, you know, and, and I do my best to try to, you know, I don't, I don't ever make him wear a mask. Uh, there's been some cases like recently his uh, soccer program that he's involved in. Um, they, they just moved locations and the new location is very strict with it. And they're like, either he can't play or he, you're going to, we're going to have to find some middle ground. So I'm like, Hey, can he just wear it on his chin? Will that be okay? You know, like, yeah, do it as, you know, do it like that as, as long as you, you can uh, until somebody says something. But, um, you know, he, he's freaking out because he feels like he's getting in trouble. You know, he feels like he's doing something wrong by not wearing a mask, even though his dad tells him it's okay. But, and then we go somewhere and somebody will say, hey, you know, push your mask up because I'll, I always tell them, like, even if we have to wear it somewhere, I'm like, put it on your chin. It'll, get, it'll keep people off your case. But every once in a while, we'll get somebody who's been brainwashed and, and they feel like they're doing a good service by saying, hey, little guy, like, hey, put that, put that mask over your, your nose. We don't want you to get sick. And he'll look at me and he's confused, you know, and then I have to explain to him, like, hey, you're not confused. That adult who just told you to put it over your, your nose is confused. And um, so all this, this, this long-term trauma, and that's the thing about children is like when they are first born, because they, they don't have uh, other communication skills, like their social, their ability to pick up on social cues are, are incredibly strong. And they pick, you know, that's why you hear about uh, children later in life talk to their parents about how they knew that their parents were going to have a divorce or they knew there was friction at home, even if the parents were trying to disguise it because they pick up on all those things that you think you're hiding, um, being angry, being frustrated. And, I, you know, to me, like all these other negative effects of the lockdown, of the forcing of the masks. I mean, in, I live in Massachusetts with uh, Dictator Baker and, you know, 
how much more evidence do you need that it's not about science when he enforces people now to wear masks uh, anywhere in public, anywhere. If you're by yourself, there's no, it just has nothing to do with being six feet away or nothing. Now you have to wear them anywhere in public. Uh, we have a curfew. My wife is in the restaurant business, which has been hit the worst of anything. I mean, we she has no work. Nobody's showing up. Everybody's afraid. They're openly telling you during press conferences, don't go uh, out to eat, which is killing small businesses and 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 you know hurting you know the business. It's hurting employees of the business. Uh, and and yet there's no. I mean, there, there's no um, financial relief. You know, there's not even that. You know, it's like well, if you're gonna if you're going to do this, then help them in some way. And there's not. I mean, you hear story and story of small small businesses in Oregon and in California, just you know, doing everything they can to stay open, and then they just keep putting new guidelines. I mean, we have a curfew now in Massachusetts just recently that everything has to be shut down at nine thirty. I mean, my wife tells me she's like the restaurant will be full at at nine thirty, and they have to kick everybody out. Like, it, it's just. You, you, it's ridiculous. Like, where's the science that proves that shutting things down at nine thirty is going to prevent the spread of anything? I mean, it's just it's it's madness. I mean, and then this, I'd love to get your also opinion on the COVID vaccine. We talked about it a little earlier with Dr. Kendra Becker and uh, Dr. Brian Hooker, but I'd love to get your your perspective on it because I'm not sure I've heard any uh, recent interviews with you uh, discussing it. You might have, but I haven't picked up on anything. But I mean, this again is is super unscientific. I mean, if you give every kid in the world peanut butter, there's going to be some deaths. Some kids are going to die. So if you give everybody the exact same vaccine, this all these conversations about mandating vaccines, if you give every single kid the exact same cocktail of, of ingredients, directly injecting them without knowing if they have a compromised immune system, without knowing any allergic reactions, anything like that, there's going to be some issues. So, I mean, all this is, is super scary. And I'm sorry, I just went on a long rant. It's it's uh, m- like much like many people who have been on this show, this whole COVID thing, it's hard not to get passionate about it because it's it's hitting us so personally. It's it's affecting our loved ones, our children, our, our business, small businesses that we love to go out and support. And um, so did you have any comments on one of the too many things I gave you to, to comment on? <laughs> well, you mentioned... Um, oops. I think I lost you there. Am I there? You can you yeah, see we, me? Yeah, we can see you and we can hear you. Yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. There we go. Oh, sometimes I'm not very good. There I got it. So, anyway, well, you, you mentioned vaccines and uh, you mentioned masks. I guess what I'd say is if you look at the best science we have regarding masks is probably from 2000 to 2019 because it wasn't bought and sold. It was, it was done with, if you will, a scientific um, thrust. I mean, science at the lowest, at the, at the simplest level is uh, observation, measurement, and then hypothesis. And the hypothesis then has to be confirmed and denied by experiment. And that's what we did from 2000 to 2019. And, and, and before that, too, OSHA has done some good stuff. But this year, we've just churned out science like it's no tomorrow, and we're just doing it to get find something to sort of say what we wanted to say. We, we're all being sort of – we're recruiting data that, that sort of supports our perspective. And so it, it's really hard to look at masks right now in terms of the data. If you actually look at the pore size in a cotton or a, sur- a, cotton or a surgical mask and you realize that the pore size is 5 microns and that a COVID-19 particle is closer to 0.1, you know that that's a difference of 50. And so you say, well, what's 50 difference? And you know, a, a gnat and a, 
a two inch gap in a chain link fence would be comparable. And I think another one would be, uh, if you will, uh, a golf ball, trying to throw a golf ball through a, uh, the fenestration that's represented by a set of French doors. Uh, you can get it through that set of uh, French doors. Uh, that's what the virus is doing. But could you have some reduction in uh, virus transmission by having it collide with the lattice work? Sure, you could. And there was a Japanese study about six weeks ago that came out and said you might even be able to knock down 28 to 42% of it. So if you have uh, 100,000 viral particles being disseminated in a sneeze or a cough, and you can reduce it to 60,000, you know, what have you accomplished? You know, you, perhaps it did provide some measure of protection, but would you want that to give a person the sense that they're now protected? Uh, if you look at the, the Danish uh, mask study from about a month ago, they had 3,000 in each arm of the study, no masks, masks all the time, no masks, masks all the time. In no masks over a month period, 2.1% of the people got COVID-19. In masks all the time, 1.8% got COVID-19. So at that point in time, you're saying, well, the difference between wearing masks all the time or not was 0.3. But in the situation, it was not statistically significant. But regardless, I think the message is clear that wearing a mask doesn't stop your risk of COVID-19. But I, I don't think it's, I mean, right now, I think we can all re react and recognize that this is an absolute emotional response with perhaps a a, a, just a small dose of science. And so people are saying, got to do it because it's one thing we can do. But I think getting back to the vaccine, I'm optimistic. I'm, I'm glad that we have it out there. Uh, I think it has to be choice. I think people have to say, do I want this or not? I, I don't think it should be a mandate. And I don't think it should be a de facto mandate. If all of a sudden we're told, well, yeah, you don't have to take it if you don't want, but if you don't, can't have a job, can't get on an airplane, can't do Well, then it's a de facto mandate. And that's just wrong. So I think this messenger RNA uh, technology we're using has promise, but we've never been successful before with it. So this is new. I get questions probably three, four, five times a day. What should I do about the vaccine? And what I'm telling people right now is if you're at risk and you're particularly vulnerable, if you can protect yourself, that's probably the safest thing. If you can't, then the vaccine might be something you might want to uh, think it was seriously about. But if you're at low risk, uh, I wouldn't stand at the front of the line. I'd, I'd sort of say, I'm going to keep doing my due diligence and trying to learn and read and uh, let someone else go in front of me. Yeah, I, I said this before you went on the air. I, I shared the story about these nurses I've been talking to in local hospitals and how they, they have this epidemic of nurses uh, leaving Massachusetts hospitals because of the conversation about mandating the vaccine. Because like a lot of people have heard on the news and, and different news organizations, uh, the first people that unfortunately are going to get the vaccine more than likely, they're going to push it to those frontline workers, the nurses, the doctors and all those people. And um, and her, the, the, the girl, I don't want to get her in trouble, so I won't say her name, but her, where she works, she said like 20, 30 percent of uh, employees have left. Um, they're offering t like tons of money for people who are staying. Uh, they're understaffed. Um, she's seeing way more patients than she should. I think like typically it's like five or six or something like that. She's seeing like seven or eight or something like that. And they're going from one patient who tested positive to the next patient who's negative to the next patient who's positive. So, I mean, the nurse obviously ha has potentially could also spread this stuff. Um, I mean, there's just, it, it is reassuring though, that even people who work in hospitals are 
a little very skeptical of this uh, of, of this whole thing and getting it to the point where they'll leave their career or leave their their workplace um i think that needs to tell people something because these are the people who are injecting people these are i mean that's the other thing she was talking about how um just the, the steps that she has to take to go to work like wearing this goggles 24 7 when you're at work you have to wear goggles you have to wear all this stuff she's like i'm trying to put ivs in people i'm trying to do all these things with god she's like i can't see you know and um so all these other issues and and the other thing is uh which i'd love to get your uh just your perspective on because i think this is something people don't realize is that when hospitals are full uh, it's good for business. They they actually want hospitals to be full. Like you're losing money if they're if they're empty. So that there is incentive also in keeping hospitals full or as full as possible. So when people say, like, oh my God, they're at 80% capacity or they're at whatever, I've talked to many people who work at hospitals who will say, like, that's actually ideal. They want it to keep it at a pretty high um, you know, capacity because it it is uh, you know, for financial reasons. Well, it's a little bit like banks. I sit on the bank board and I'm the chairman of the audit committee. And, um, you know, if, if we're looking at uh, hitting our projected uh, net income for the year. And we're at 80% loan to deposit ratio. If we want to make more money, we go to 90%. And, but what we do then is, so for every $100 we, we bring in through someone's um, uh, savings account, uh, we loan 80% of it out and we get a margin on that. That's how we make money. I think um, the hospital is the same way. If a hospital has 100 beds and they've got 80 beds used that are re- generating revenue, if they can go to 90, they'll make more money. And that would allow them to potentially hire different people, start new departments, get a new MRI, a new mammogram machine, and things like that. So the question is, what do hospitals normally run? <laughs> Shoot a mile. We run at 80 to 90% all the time. I work a lot of ER in my life. I've been medical director at several ERs. And Honestly, uh, we go and divert. That's no big deal. I mean, we've got in the Minneapolis-St. Paul, we've got a lot of hospitals. And if if all of our beds are full, we'll, you know, I'll can come into the ER and they'll say, well, we're on divert and uh, these two hospitals have room. And so, you know, that's what we'll use. But that doesn't happen, you know, tons, but it does happen. The fact of the matter is I've yet to see anybody that had to, if you will, lie in a gurney outside on the sidewalk because we had overwhelmed our hospital facilities. That was the original intent of a lot of the mitigating policies way back in March was flatten the curve so we don't overwhelm the hospital facilities and we can accumulate the amount of PPE and the ventilators we need. Well, we did that. And the fact of the matter is you got people out there, you know, behaving like chicken a little saying the sky is falling, the sky is falling. And that's just where they like to be. Sometimes I think there's an underlying motive. But nevertheless, we're fine. Our hospitals in Minnesota, anyway, are handling the surge, and now the surge looks like it's dropping off. But I think that people are just massaging the facts and picking the data that really goes to their perspective, and everybody's doing it. I think you will also figure out, Ricky, that every time there's a massive blast by the media about cases spiking – the fear sets in and then more people go to the hospital thinking they have it. They want to, they just want to get checked. So I think they're driving people to the hospitals that normally would just lay in bed, self quarantine with their cold, their flu, Corona, whatever it is. And then, you know, go back to work, but now there's no work. Right. So it's like, would you, would you say that's the case, Dr. Jensen? I I would. And we just got done with the Senate. Uh, We had a special session today in Minnesota 
And one of the senators had talked about a situation where we had, um, there were some 200 people that would be eligible for this job. And so each of the 200 were contacted and, and advised that they could apply and have this job. And not one of them said yes. And part of it was because some of our programs have literally undercut our, our work ethic. And the incentive to get back in the workforce has in some situations been shortchanged. And I think that that's really, uh, that's really critical. And uh, so we're seeing a lot of things happen to the workforce. Uh, in some situations, there aren't jobs. In some situations, there are jobs, but people don't want them. In some situations, there are jobs, but people say, I'll do that job only if I can stay home. And I mean, we've even got that in our education. We've got some uh, teachers are saying, I'm not going to go in. We've got other teachers say, I got to be in there with my students. I mean, this is a, this is a true mishmash. Dr. Jens, I have a question for you. So um, it's so admirable the way that you've stood up to the medical establishment. And obviously, you know, they've they've come at you really hard. I was just curious, have you experienced, well, we all know like big pharma is like obviously the biggest lobbyists uh, out there. And and have you experienced any sort of attacks or treachery from that end? Well, big pharma was upset with me and they, they went after Minnesota because of a bill I was a chief author on. We did an insulin safety net bill and they said that uh, the bill went too far. And so they they're suing us on that. So I probably wasn't their best friend to start with. Uh, but in terms of any devious, underhanded things that they've done to me, I've not seen anything. I think the bigger thing is the, if you will, the uh, the real passionate politicals, the ones that have, they get to be anonymous, but they've accused me of being reckless to public health, spreading misinformation, um, those kinds of claims that cause me then to have to defend my medical license. I think those are the ones that for me have They've been very mean-spirited, and it's very frustrating. But big pharma, per se, hasn't, that I know of, come after me. And uh, I don't know. I'd, I'd like to think that my my approach is open and transparent enough that they just sort of say, well, that's just uh, someone with their own perspective. Thank you. Well, locally in Massachusetts, I saw even uh, I live not too far from Amherst, about like 40 minutes away. Uh, and they reported to Mass Live that the state misrepresented their their cases and deaths and it was just like this story that everybody kind of looked past and nobody cared about and then you hear you know your your story about the death certificates you hear all these stories you hear dr burks on mainstream you know tv saying that they're being very liberal with the cases uh i mean it blows my mind how much evidence there is that we've been lied to we've been deceived that the numbers have been in, inflamed and there's very little to no evidence that they were correct on anything. I mean, it's, it, 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 do you find the same frustrations with, with, with all this, like that there's just so much evidence to at least question the, what we've been told. And, and, and even the fact that like something like vitamin C people talking about uh, zinc and vitamin C and, and just taking care of your immune system was being pulled off YouTube uh, Dr. Madey, her her um, uh, interviews were pulled off uh, YouTube. Dr. Northrup, uh, was uh, she had a, a viral video when uh, was pulled off YouTube. Anybody who goes against the mainstream narrative is pulled off YouTube. But what's f really curious to me is why if I went to go get a second opinion on some knee pain I had and two or three doctors didn't agree on something, it's completely acceptable and okay. But in this case... 
these doctors are God. They've whatever they say is correct. If you go against what they say, Dr. Jensen, then it must be because you're a quack or you're pseudoscience or you're a conspiracy theorist. I mean, what's happened? Well, I think that's where the medical profession really has to own some of this. We have really let you let America down. We, uh, that notion that we would hold science up high is uh, absolutely been decimated. We're a big part of the problem. We're so splintered. The notion of grand rounds and doctors getting together uh, on a puzzling case, tumor conferences, uh, Friday morning medical conferences, that wasn't something that we did because we wanted to gather around in a circle, hold hands and sing Kumbaya. These were things we did to desperately advance our understanding of science. And what did one person think and what the other person think? And should we try this or should we try that? And if we do this regimen for this person's colon cancer and we extend their life by 33%, but that 33% only represents two months because right now their projected lifespan is six months, then we've just made the six months a living hell. Those are the kinds of things we do. And we've not done those with COVID-19. We've belittled and attacked and bullied and vilified someone who doesn't agree with us. Scott Atlas. I mean, this guy's had a wonderful career. Stanford guy, Donnie Unitas, all kinds of people like this. And they're just being hammered. These are people that a year ago were at the pinnacle of, of medical honor. And now they're being savaged. It makes no sense. And frankly, the medical profession is going to have to own this because this is not who we've been. And I don't know who we're going to end up blaming, what we're going to do in that regard. But at the end of the day, we have changed and it's not for the better. And I don't know how easy it's going to get to get back to where we were before. In the same way, the CDC is going to have to rebuild itself. So is my medical profession. Yeah. And none of this is about safety. It's about compliance. I mean, anywhere where I go, where there's a mandate for masks, if I wear a scarf, if I wear uh, anything on my face, if I wear it underneath my nose, nobody will say anything. It's, it's, it's fine. So it's not about the spread of, of the virus. Even when Dr. Fauci said, oh, well, I told people not to wear masks because I didn't want people to go out and buy all of them. Well, if masks were really that important and you truly believe that it would save lives, you could have told people like, hey, don't go out and, and buy all the masks, but get a scarf, get something, make one at home if you if they if we run out. And if you truly believe that. So him back We're doing years ahead of time. Like how come they didn't do this? I went out and bought master and Ebola six years ago. And then now which is great because now I get to argue with liberals when I'm like, oh when's the first time you bought a mask? Oh March, that's cute. I bought it six years ago. And then I've gone tomorrow will be five months without touching a mask. So I've gone I just walk into every single place I go and and I say very few times, I mean, sometimes with security calls or some other BS, 99.99% of the time, nothing happens. No one says anything. Uh, granted, I'm in Arizona, and, but, you know, it, and, you know, I wish I didn't taint my streak and could have just had it be, you know, perfect. But, you know, how much of this is, you know, you see people who, and this is an interview I did with actually Jeff Berwick in February, where, or, you know, if you're walking around thinking you're getting sick and scared of getting sick, then you sort of almost, almost sort of 
I don't know what the right word. Like you manifest getting sick, and then you you have like a tiny bit of, of of sickness or illness or something's coming on, and then maybe you then freak out, and then all that extra stress and might then cause you to go to the hospital when normally, if the media wasn't hyping this up, maybe you wouldn't have gone to the hospital. And then early on, you go to a place like I think it was called like Elmwood or the hospital in New York City that was the epicenter of the epicenter where that nurse had the hidden cameras and were saying that how because of like bad practices that they were you know, sort of, uh, you know, spreading it throughout there, not, not saying they're doing it intentionally, but you know, how much, and it's just really also, you know, to see no one talking about anything like vitamin D or vitamin C. And now, and now I just got the union of the unwanted, uh, you know, <laughs> live stream shut down or, or channel deleted, but you know, how much of this, you know, is people, you know, like is the hospitals you know, just like an overreaction of people or they're getting these false positives because they're amping up the, PCR tests and then they're just like freaking out and going to the hospital when they might not otherwise really have to go to the hospital? Well, that's a great question. And if you actually look at the data, if you can hype a thousand people that don't have COVID-19 and you can hype them into thinking that they might, and then they all get tested, but they're all negative. We'll just say God told us they're all negative. So we take that thousand, nobody's got COVID-19, but we jazz them up. And so they all think they have it. So they all go get tested depending upon your false positive rate, you can end up having an enormous amount of corruption in the data that, that is applicable to that population. And, and that's what we're doing. The power of suggestion in medicine is huge. Uh, if I say uh, to a patient, they say, oh, I, you know, they come and see me for chest pain. I say, well, you know, you don't have any chest pain when you exert yourself, do you? Well, actually, Doc, you know, I, I do a little bit. You know, I, I did. I walked up that flight of stairs, and I, I think I did have some chest pain. I, I can do it all day long. The power of suggestion in human behavior is very real. And I think we're seeing that with COVID-19. So if someone's got a runny nose, or well, take my COVID-19. I had COVID-19 in August. I didn't know it. I thought it was ragweed season. Uh, I had runny nose, stuffy nose, and a little tired, maybe slight cough, no fever, no shortness of breath. A month later, when I connected with a friend of mine, we got talking about how his summer went. He said, yeah, he said, I'm getting COVID in the middle of August. I said, when was that? And he told me, I said, well, shoot a mile. I was with you that weekend. Oh, yeah, that's right. And I said, you know, five days later, I had this weird ragweed thing because normally ragweed lasts about four, four weeks for me. And it was only five days and gone. And, I'm, and I hadn't thought much of it. And I said, I wonder if I might have had what you had. So anyway, I got my antibodies tested and I'd been testing every every other month and I'd been negative. And sure enough, I turned positive. So I've got IgG antibodies. And that's a pretty reliable test. So I didn't even know I had it. Uh, but the power of suggestion, had I seen someone, if they wanted me to say that, and they said, well, gee, you know, do you have a bit of a cough? You know, do you ever feel warm? And by the way, on when we make the diagnosis of COVID-19, when we say fever, you don't have to have a fever as measured by a thermometer. Fever counts if it's a subjective sense of being a fever. And I can't tell you how many people tell me, oh, I have a fever. I say, oh, well, did you check your temp? Well, no, I didn't. So then we check it when they're in the office. Their temp's normal. People think they have fevers lots and lots of times, but they don't. But in the world of diagnosing COVID-19, you don't need documented fever on a thermometer. All you need is a subjective sense that you had a fever. Well, it's funny. You remind me uh, your story, what you said about suggesting things. Uh, it reminds me of this book, Mind Over Back Pain by Dr. Sorno, who uh, he found out that people were, who had really bad backs didn't necessarily have the worst pain and vice versa. 
And then he, he, he started asking them like, hey, is there something going on in, with your life or whatever? And what he was finding out was that people who had really bad back pain wasn't necessarily uh, because of the physical, you know, uh, back pinching a nerve or whatnot, disc pinching a nerve, but it was actual mental stress that was finding a spot to relieve that pain. And uh, we know the placebo effect exists, right? Like you could you could uh, heal yourself if you truly believe you're you're being healed. Well, the reverse obviously would happen too. And like Tim said, um, if you can make yourself sick, if you believe you're sick because of the anxiety, the stress and all this stuff. And you're seeing that now because throughout these nine months, one thing that everybody was constantly sharing with one another is like the the levels of anxiety, the levels of um, uncertainty because nobody knew what was going on. There's so much conflicting information. I don't know what to believe. I don't, and that also plays in the favor of people who are telling us wear a mask and do this and take the vaccine because so many people are afraid and there's so much conflicting information that they're like, you know what, I'm just going to do it because I'm told to because I don't know what to believe. And, um, you know, I highly recommend people go to other alternative websites, not YouTube or don't use Google, go to Odyssey, go to, you know, Float, go to all these alternative bit shoot. And, and if you want to do research, go to those spots because it's people like Dr. Jensen and, and others, you're being pulled off these, these uh, platforms and, and you're being, you know, you're being force fed the mainstream narrative. I mean, even when you're being going around being interviewed, I mean, there's a lot of media places that wouldn't even talk to you. Right. And, 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 you know, it was mostly, I think, I know you're on Fox news, but maybe BBC also. And, and outside of that, I mean, there's only a handful of, of people who want to talk to you. And this was a huge story. I mean, this literally was the evidence that, that people needed uh, who were saying, hey, I think these numbers are being inflated. Well, actually, I'd probably take issue a little bit with you there in the sense that um, I was amazed at, at actually how diverse it was that people wanted to talk to me. I mean, I remember doing Australia several times, uh, BBC I did, but I think there was uh, Russia Today, um, Amsterdam several times. Uh, and then in Minnesota, because I'm a Minnesota senator, there was quite a bit there too. But actually, and then there was people in New Hampshire and Pennsylvania, several of you here on the audience tonight reached out to me, Texas, Alan Keyes had me on several times, Dell Bigtree, uh, Dr. Drew, uh, Tony Robbins, uh, Rush Limbo did a piece on me. So I thought there was really quite a bit of coverage. And I uh, I didn't think it was because of my homespun good looks. <laughs> well, the, the Dell Bigtree got kicked off YouTube, so uh, <laughs> you know, there's uh, him and and RT is. You know, you have the the government saying that it's uh, Russian propaganda, even though Larry King has a show on there. Uh, Governor Jesse Ventura has a show on there. Uh, uh, what's his name? Uh, Tom Hartman had a show, The Big Picture, forever on there. Super, you know, liberal progressive guy. Abby Martin, you know, left-leading liberal. Um, it, so it, it, does it really sound like it's, it's you know, some conservative uh, Russian collusion, you know, pushing propaganda? I, unfortunately, I think a lot of times your best uh, source for information is either uh, alternative platform, a smaller platform like a Dell Big Tree High Wire, or it is these international stations like RT or, you know, one of the uh, many other ones. And um, so, I mean, I, yeah, I mean, I, I get it, but you weren't interviewed on CNN. You were inter interviewed on MSNBC. I mean, I don't think that's coincidental. Yeah. 
and I did let people know I would love to be interviewed on CNN. I'd love to have that sort of balanced discussion. I did. I was on Newsmax quite a while for a while. And, uh, but it's, it is what it is. Uh, folks, I've really enjoyed it. I do have to get home. Uh, my wife just uh, got out of the hospital a couple of days ago, and I don't want to leave her home too much longer. I've really enjoyed uh, having this chance to have a conversation. I'd love to do it again sometime. Thank Thanks. you, Dr. Jensen. So Thank, you. Thank, Thank you. you very much. Keep in touch. Thank you. Awesome, guys. Three doctors on one show, huh? Dr. Brian Hooker, Dr. Jensen, and uh, who am I missing? And Dr. Kendra Becker. That's like a double episode right there. Larry Robinson. I knew I should have contacted Dr. Dre. (laughs) Would have put us over the top, but whatever. Great episode for... uh, This is Dr. Pepper. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe, uh, Maybe the next episode we can focus on solutions so people know... You know, it's like, cause one thing I've learned is like helping people with their health all these years is like, you can't, like when I was a financial advisor and I was doing it in the evenings at night, I would, here's all the problems and then goodbye. And they'd leave and like, you don't give people solutions. Like and that fear keeps taking over. So solutions are really important. Like what, what can you do naturally to boost your immune system? And so, you, you know, you won't get sick and it's not just for COVID. It's like colds and flus and shit like that. When I was a kid growing up, I used to get those. I get strep throat, I get colds, I get flus. I had all that. And as I got older and I was more of a product over my environment on the standard American diet and the stressors of daily life and the antibiotics that they pumped into all these animals and, you know, all these things that are going on, I started getting sicker longer and longer and longer. So a cold that used to last two or three days when I was a kid I was in bed for like two weeks, coughing up all this phlegm and all this stuff. And I was getting sicker and sicker. That was by the time I was 37, I was overweight. I had all my health issues. I was bleeding rectally, organs removed. And now I'm at 47. I can't get sick. I don't get colds. The only way I'll get sick is if I get three, four, five, six nights of poor sleep. And then maybe I'll pick up, a. I could get a cold. I could have mild symptoms, but it doesn't last as long. So these immunity boosting lifestyle tactics are very important for people to know because it's not just about COVID. It's like, how would you like to not have a cold or a flu ever again? Or if you, excuse me, when you do have it, your body just handles it. You know, that's possible for you. I know I've got lots of people, but I have firsthand experience with my own life. And I used to think that I used to be, oh, if I get a cold, I was like, ah, getting a cold, it's, it's going to get me, you know, it's, and then boom, I'd get it. Like, oh, I'm sick now. And I was always kind of living in fear and it would just suck. I was just like, that's the way it was. And it doesn't have to be that way for those people listening. You can, you can boot, you can boost your immune system. There's ways of doing it. You guys, uh, anybody have some final thoughts, anything they want to share or uh, maybe discuss briefly uh, to wrap while we wrap things up. I got to have brunch with Charlie in a bubble on Saturday and it was delightful. It's true. We did. We went, we sat in an igloo outside in Boulder uh, in 24 degree weather and we had brunch and we talked to some and, and Steve's doing amazing work with his Julian Assange rallies and protests and vigils and, and everything. And to see that level of commitment on a, you know, on an afternoon standing on a street corner, I saw you guys out there with the signs in this, you know, and it's freezing ass cold and to see that commitment was inspiring and Steve's an awesome dude and we had a good time. And, and We were supposed to have an indoor space and they yanked it from us at the last moment because of COVID. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, they're blending two fake narratives with one, right? You've got the, the COVID insanity with the Julian Assange is a traitor type stuff too. So what a, what a, 
<laughs> they got two birds with one stone. It's right? my favorite one, by the you way, the Trader one. <laughs> favorite <laughs> one. Uh, you saw that today, right? The Hopium Julian Assange tweet, just to kind of throw that in there, where he was going to get pardoned. And that was actually one of the first, the pastor put it out there, Trump's yeah. pastor. And he was one of the first speakers at the uh, rally I was at in D.C. For those that don't know, about an hour and a half ago, Bill Barr did resign. So yeah. he's out on uh, December 23rd. So we could save that for two weeks from chaos from now. Is that post? Uh, that's post uh, Christmas. So I want to say Merry Christmas to everybody. And uh, I look forward to seeing you guys then. Yeah. And get together with your families. Okay. Don't, I, I know so many people who aren't getting, I mean, now more than ever, you need to get together with your families. You need love. You need conversation. You need to laugh. You need to live. I mean, that's kind of what we're all fighting for in the first place. We can't forget to do those things. I mean, we yeah, just want those freedoms to be able to do those things. So exactly. don't stop doing it. You know, uh, make sure you do get together with your friends and family. Even though I know many people who are afraid of like neighbors calling the cops on them or getting in trouble if they have too many people at their house. Um, I hope people don't do that. You know, so. Um, either way, I'm going to get people together regardless. So, I mean, if, if the cops show up, I'm going to be hammered and probably get maced. But um, <laughs> get it on video, please. Do a not comply winter. with unjust orders. Okay. If you want to have your, your holiday party, you do it. You do what you need to do. You do it. You take care of your family first and foremost. Fuck the state. They can, they can get in line behind. They're not on your priority list even. So well, they want us to get together, but it's fine for Newsom to get together with his right. friends, and and they right. don't even believe that. That's the more evidence that they don't even believe the shit that they're. Of course not. Spewing well, the recall Newsom thing is gathering some steam now, and it's really, really nice to see that. Yes, it is. I, yeah, unfortunately, I can't go back to visit my family because they're in New York. So you know, that's there's no way I'm going to be on a 14 day quarantine. But in honor of that, you know, Ernie's throwing a, a big party, and we'll probably have over 100 people over there. So. You know, one more way to get back at the state. But just want to remind everybody for uh, Brandy Vaughn, that link was bit.ly slash learn the risk is the easiest way to find that. Her organization's learn the risk. And thank you. This is an amazing show. Thank you for Ricky for putting it on. And thank you for having me. Thanks, guys. Anybody else want to plug anything? Let people know where they can get your stuff. Uh, any final thoughts? I just had one final thought. We just had a, a situation here in in Springfield, Oregon, uh, one of these restaurants that uh, decided we're either going to shut down for good or we're going to stay open. Uh, so they, they stayed open and OSHA wanted to shut them down. This place, they have people armed standing at the door, not letting anyone in Their Their people are protecting this place. Uh, OSHA tried to call the Springfield police to help them to, to go in and shut them down. The police wanted nothing to do with it. They called the county police. County police wouldn't have anything to do with it. They called the state police. State police wouldn't have anything to do with it. OSHA went in and the Springfield police came and kicked them out. So I feel hey. like there is some hope going on right now. And wow, I, that's awesome. Um, so me and Megan are going to go down to this restaurant on Friday and check it out and kind of just, you know, congratulate everybody and kind of get more of the story. But I, it really uh, gave me some hope. That people are starting goodness. to get pissed off. Yeah, and I would love to hear more about like what Jason's got going on. You know, maybe we can speak offline and stuff. But like, also, um, you know, we we went up to we've been kind of uh, working with the Freedom Cells, freedomcells.org. Um, we've been going up to a couple of meetups as far as that goes. Um, and uh, the last one we were at, we were uh, there was a presentation by Howard Lichtman. Um, he was on uh, Corbett Report recently, and he was actually there and, and gave us his spiel. And he's just doing traveling the country. And if you guys haven't heard of it, uh, anybody out there, check out thickredline.org. Um, basically, the movement is they are interfacing with local law enforcement 
to not enforce any nonviolent crimes, which include COVID restrictions. It seems to be getting some traction. So definitely shout out to Howard and uh, you guys check out uh, thickredline.org. It's pretty- oh, How- Howard is awesome. Yeah, Howard is awesome. And actually we threw the first, and it was actually Tina Marie, the one who, uh, who was, was yeah. as part of Learn the Risk, who threw the first uh, organ- who threw the first event for Thick Red Line out here. And uh, yeah, Howard's a, a good friend. And actually, he was going to be at my house that day with Corbett, to, but yeah. we were doing this. But yeah, can we, uh, we mind if I would get him on, Ricky? I think I'd asked you before. Yeah, he's Howard Rickman. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's he phenomenal, man. I watched yeah. his presentation at Anarchapulco. And no, he's he, awesome. He, he brought the goods in a big way. Yeah. Absolutely. He was speaking at the same time as me. So you, you didn't I know go to mind then. Sorry. No. I, I know. I know. <laughs> I got I screwed. I, I, I got screwed. I got put on at the same time as Corbett and Howard. I'm like, damn it. I know. I wanted to go see. <laughs> well, and remember, people for uh, people who are listening that the Union of the Unwanted has become its own uh, thing. It, I mean, it's always been kind of its own thing, but we didn't have a home for it. Now it has its own RSS feed, has its own flow page. Soon it'll be on Odyssey. It has its own YouTube channel, which we streamed onto it uh, tonight, and uh, its own thing. And everybody who participates, everybody who listens, everybody who's involved is a part of this community. And I can't thank everybody enough. I mean, this thing has really taken a life of its own. And um, I really feel like we're doing some really important work. Every episode, uh, we've been just getting amazing people on and just sharing so many great perspectives and ideas. And um, and people are really, really, I mean, just but the feedback is just amazing. I mean, people really look forward to this uh, th- this show. It's only twice a month. So I think that that kind of works in its favor, too. People are really like waiting to see who's going to be on and, and, and you know, and whatnot, um, you know, so... It's, uh, yeah, I can't thank everybody enough, the listeners, the participants, all the guests that uh, always take time to come on and, and you know, share their thoughts and, and politely uh, listen, because I know sometimes it's really hard to get everybody a little bit of a time to, to share your uh, your ideas and perspectives. But, um, you know, I love the fact that it's a community and it's such a diverse community. I mean, we have people of so many different backgrounds and ideas and opinions. But yet we know we're all fighting for the same thing and we can come together for that. And I think that's a super important uh, thing to continue, you know. I should. Yeah, I, I think uh, that, that, that's probably it. Then. That's it. <laughs> that's enough. Namaste. Nice. Good job, Ricky. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Thank you guys for joining us. Thanks, Mike. See you guys later. Carly, Tim. Have a good night, y'all. Thanks, Ricky. All right, guys.